tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Good morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number, it won't cost you to make a call, and Leanne is producing today. Coming up on the show this morning, Ali will join us from Holy Cross for this week's part of the Village Tour. The listener has some ideas about encouraging integration in our communities at the rising cost of veterinary care. Leanne will uh, chat to me about Bachelor's Day, which is tomorrow, and Alton Nesbeth has gardening advice for you. So if you have a gardening query, will you log it with us as soon as you possibly can on 083 311 for text or WhatsApp. You can email, of course, uh, tiptoday at tipfm.com. Quick look at uh, what's making headlines in your newspapers today and right across the newspapers, coverage of Minister Catherine Martin's appearance before the Oireachtas uh, Media Committee. Uh, yesterday, the Irish Indo telling us that Catherine Martin was aware that Shunni Rahali uh, was likely to resign as RTE's chair before the minister went on prime time last Thursday night. The Irish Times and their angle on the RTE story is that uh, Shunni Rahali uh, warned that she could resign before a crucial appearance by uh, the Minister in RTE's prime time. Uh, that's according to the Minister herself and uh, resisted attempts to arrange a meeting to discuss Miss Martin's disappointment in her. Also on the Irish Times uh, today, one of the largest providers of emergency accommodation for children in state care in recent years was found to have fabricated pre-employment checks of staff and alter Garda vetting clearances and that's according to an internal Tusla report. Now I find that very scary indeed. The Irish Examiner and uh, their reference to the RTE story is that uh, Minister Martin could not depend on information from the chair. Also on the front of the Examiner today, and I love your opinion on this, uh, they're saying that uh, almost 40% of Irish people wrongly believe Climate change is jointly caused by people and natural occurrences, despite incontrovertible scientific evidence uh, it's down to human activity. And an in-depth news survey on Ireland's attitude to climate issues uh, has found that uh, large swathes of the population overestimate the impact their own actions are having on climate action, while support for policies such as higher taxes on petrol or diesel cars and bans on peat and coal and home heating oil has fallen. And that's no surprise, really. But an interesting part of this is that when it comes to taking action, 12% said that Ireland is too small to make a difference on climate change and should let others take the lead. But the majority said that Ireland has the responsibility to do what it can. Now, this is according to the um, the EPA, that is the Environmental Protection Agency, of course. So it's an interesting one. Again, we'd love your opinion on that. The Irish Daily Mail, and they're dedicating their entire front page to the RTE story, and they're telling us that D Forbes must tell us about Nally job move and exit package. Now, that was a new aspect to the story. Um that emerged yesterday as uh, in, indeed and it, it's about the guy 
David Nelly and the role of editorial advisor in RTE content was created for David Nelly who was Kevin Backhurst's uh, number two when he was uh, formerly managing director of the news and current affairs department but there were allegations about bullying and one thing or another he was kind of moved sideways and then after I think it was 18 months he was given a package sent off on his merry way. Isn't it incredible? Now, the media minister will face the doyle today over handling of the RTE crisis. Catherine Martin, she was questioned, as you know, by members of the Oireachtas Committee for three and a half hours. Well, Tipperary's independent TD, Matthew McGrath, uh, is part of that media committee and he put a number of questions to her and here's a little snippet of uh, what he had to say to the minister. I felt compelled that I, you know, when asked to share the information that I had, rather than conceal it. Um, Minister, on, on public television, it was a very you could have waited, situation. you could have cancelled the programme, as others have asked, and said you, you could have easily pulled out. You, you, we know now that you had briefed the presenter or the research team that you were prepared to answer this question. So it's a leading question you got to dismiss her publicly or throw her under the bus, as has been said. But now, Minister, going forward, how can you give confidence here, or what confidence can you give us? are indeed the public who, I think they've touched off from watching this anyway, because they're just pure patently disgusted with it, as they're disgusted with much of the content in RT, and I reiterate that I have sympathy for the vast majority of employees in RT, but to Cabell at the top, what confidence can you give me and our committee here to the chair that you're going to be able to deal with this Cabell? You have failed miserably in the, in the, in since last July to do it. You're just feel to be weak at all uh, junctures, and successive governments have done so as well. So what confidence can you give us that you're able to deal with this cabal? Because that's what it is now, a cabal. And I think Mr. Backhurst's position is untenable as well. I find it hard to think that you could say he sat there and, and didn't advise or notice to Mr. Nirali and say, look, you're misinforming the minister there. And you still have confidence in him and have in the other. So where's this leading and what, what confidence can you give us that you're going to be able to deal with this cabal? I... I have confidence in in meeting with the, the board on Friday. I have confidence that we can find a path forward. It's a, a very future-looking um, meeting that we intend to have. Um, I have confidence in in the reforms that, that are taking place, and I have confidence that when we receive the expert advisory committee well, recommendations that we implemented, I, I don't think it's fair to, to, to say that as a sweeping statement. I think nobody they, else they, has. I, I, again, I do not think that's fair. I and don't I don't believe you have either, to be fair, I've, if you're being honest. I have absolute I don't believe confidence. you have, to the chair. I don't believe you have. How could you, when the DG sits there through a meeting where you're being misinformed? by Mr. Nirahili, as you've stated yourself, and he never opens his mouth. Bail, bail, don't you? I have confidence in the reforms that are underway and the reforms that need to happen. Um, but more importantly, the absolute value uh, that we all have here on public service broadcasting and... It's been uh, eroded very fast, Minister, and you haven't helped. That's uh, Tipperary Independent uh, TD, Matty McGrath, um, uh, speaking to uh, Minister Catherine Martin yesterday and uh, Matty, part of that uh, media committee. Three and a half hours she was uh, before the committee. I'm wondering, what do you think about what emerged from yesterday? Is it adding to the chaos? Did it clear any of it up for you? Or, here's a very important one, do you really care at this point? Again, we'd love to hear from you. 83 Now, with all the talk surrounding the upcoming referendums, many have had to ask themselves yes or no, but for some, 
there is the decision not to vote at all. And Rita, to the best of my knowledge, feels uh, like that. Rita, good morning to you. Good morning, uh, Brian. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Rita. Is is that fair to say, Rita? Have you decided not to vote? I have, because I have been a clue, Fran, to be quite honest about it. I don't know what it's about. I even picked up the leaflet, yeah. everything, read it, and I was more confused when I finished than was when I started. I mean, is it to do with families, marriage, husband and wife, children? Is it to do with... Single parents, children. What? I mean, what is it to do with? Well, it's probably to do with all of the above, I, I, I suppose, Rita. But certainly a lot of people are finding it very complex and wondering what the hell they should do yeah, about it, but you know? This is, to me, a, a man and a woman that are married and have uh, children or a family. So does that mean a man and a woman who are living together and not married are not a family? Well, you see, that's what you're voting for, that, you know, the notion of family is not just based on marriage, but it's based on what they're calling durable relationships. Um, whether yeah. Whether that is people who are unmarried or, you know, gay couples, lesbian couples, single mums, single dads, what, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't know. It just came out of nowhere, this, this referendum. Yeah. Uh, people didn't have a chance to think. They didn't have a chance to, to study it or to know exactly what actually is going on or what it actually means. Yeah. And, uh, do you know, in your circle of friends, Rita, would would they feel similar to you, those of you? Oh, they do. Do they? I say to him, like, oh, God, this bloody referendum, I have to do. I don't think I'm going to vote because I don't know whether I'm voting no when I should be voting yes or yes when I should be voting no. And this, no, but you're not the only one. Just half the country doesn't understand what's going on. Right. So I'm guessing then you don't feel this is necessary, do you? No, I think things should be left alone. I mean, there's too many changes at the moment in the country. Mm. And people, people have too many problems. And I mean, to go through this referendum, I think people should be left their own. And what if they were to tell you that you know, particularly the issue about women's duties being in the home, and now you know you have fathers who might be staying at home and looking after the kids or, or whatever. That that things have changed since 1937. Um, does that mean anything to you, Reza? Yes, I think a woman's place is wherever she wants to be herself, whether she wants to work or whether she wants to stay at home mm. and look after her children. That's her decision, and I don't think anybody should say it's her. Look, at, you can stay at home and look after your children, or you can get out to work. And do you think I that the, think the, so. the current wording of the Constitution, that doesn't stop a woman from doing that as far as you're concerned? No. No. Yeah. No, I think a woman will do whatever she wants to do. And a man... If a man wants to stay at home and look after his children, fair enough. If he wants to go out to work, fair enough. It's his decision. And again, I suppose their argument to you would be that, you know, they, they want a general neutral uh, approach to what's in the, the Constitution. Um, is, is that relevant, do you think, Rita? No, I think, no, I think it's their own decision. Yeah. I don't think anybody should put in writing what they should do or what they shouldn't do. I think it's up to themselves. Did you ever feel held back as a woman, Rita? No, because I did whatever I wanted to do myself. Did you? I reared my children, and when my children were reared, I went out to work, and I worked up the time I had that surgery. You remember that? I, I do. I do indeed. Yeah, yeah. so do I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, 
I did what I wanted to do. I went out to work and I, I enjoyed it, but I had to come home then and try and get a dinner, get baked and cook and whatever. Like, and I did it all, like, you know, and sometimes I came home on a bicycle. <laughs> I didn't even have a car. My God. Like, you know, and I, I was happy. Yeah, you never, you never, question, you never questioned that in any way, Rita. Even though it was, no, how, I, no, I loved yeah. it. I absolutely, and I actually loved the work that I was doing. I worked in bar work, and I absolutely loved it. And like coming home, to cooking the dinner, we were all there together, my husband and my four children, myself, and I had the dinner ready, and I had the bread cooked, and I had the buns made, and whatever, like you know. And, I, and I did you feel? It. Did you feel that you didn't feel at any point? Then I'm guessing that you know you were deprived of the opportunity to go and pursue a career, or because, not at all. I didn't. I didn't go far enough in school to get a career. Just, just <laughs> I said, was the second eldest of fourteen children. Of fourteen so, children. Fourteen children. I'm the second eldest, and unfortunately, my eldest brother has passed away uh, there to, in twenty one. And um, my sister said to me, she says, Risa, you're next. <laughs> oh, stop, stop. Take she that back. She meant I was next in line. Yeah, take, take that back. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about your mother, the 14 children, Risa. Yeah, my mother what was a woman. married young. And, oh, and she was 86 when she passed away. And she died in 1915. Or 2015, sorry. She died in 2015, so... She lived a good life, but she lived too lonely in the end because my dad had passed away in 2000. And um, she was kind of basically on her own, for except for the family when we'd go visit her. Yeah. When I was well, I used to go down and take her out for a drink and bring her home yeah. and that life. But then, as I, you know, I had the surgery, and after that, then my life changed. And you, you, you couldn't do that as much, I presume, then, Rita? No, no, but now... I can drive and I can do everything by our dance. And I, I used to love dancing. I used to love it. But I look at, um, I'm having, unfortunately, as you know, I lost my husband. Um, it's nearly 12 months now uh, it, in May. Indeed. Oh, my God. Yeah. And where does time go? But, like, it, I lost him and um, I miss him. And that's what people should be thinking of. They should be thinking of their time together. Uh, what they do. Uh, life is very short when it comes to it. We were married 55 years. I knew him for three. So I knew him for 58 years. Oh my God. But now, looking back, um, like it, 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 it's sad. It's sad. You've had a tough few years, Rita. Oh, I had a tough few years with my back. Like, only I was uh, ended up in Dublin, like, for for um, major back surgery. I have a lot of metal and that in my back. But uh, thank God I can get up and I can walk, which I wasn't able to do. You know what I was like. You've seen yeah, me. Yeah. And um, I fought back. I fought back. And that's why I am on my feet today. And uh, I'm delighted to hear that. I'm still t- harking back to your mum. 14 children. What was yeah. it like to live in in a home with 14 children, Rita? Was that? But you're looking <laughs> like being the eldest girl. You were like a second mother. I suppose. Um yeah. Yeah, you were there. You were helping with the washing, the cooking, the cleaning. Uh, you think you were sneaking out the door to get away from play. And you go back here, but I wouldn't need them windows. And, <laughs> and then, like, you know, my mum was kind of, she was nearly always pregnant. And I actually had to stay at home from school, look after the house. So basically, I just got a basic education. But I came on, I did a lot myself. And um, yeah. teaching my children their homework, I learned a lot. 
Trump's mm. Irish, mm. all that teaching my own children. And I, I learned more than what I did when I was going to school. And Rita, did your mother ever complain? You know, did she ever wish she that she had a different, a different life for Never. I never. never heard my mother complaining. Never. She was always there. She was always had whatever we had. We were never hungry. We were never without clothes. She looked after us. My husband or my father started out working with the farmers, uh, which were good for him. And then he left that and he started working on a digger. And, um, like, we were just ordinary country people. So you've made up your mind then, Rita, you you won't vote. And and just finally, for people who would say to you, listen, the vote was hard fought for and people should make use of a vote. Um, does that hold anything for you? It, it, the vote was fought for women's rights, that women should have some say in something. Women were second-class citizens. They weren't uh, allowed to do anything. It was all the men were allowed to do, say, everything that was to be done. So this was to give women, that vote was to give women freedom. But he doesn't say that uh, if a person doesn't understand what they're voting for, it doesn't say that they should vote because they don't know whether they're voting, voting right or wrong. Well, Rita, it was lovely to talk to you. It's been quite a while, and uh, I, I wish you well with the with the health, Rita. And again, condolences about much. the loss of your your husband. It's been a tough time for you, but lovely to talk thank to you, Rita. Thank I you. I do too, Frank. Thank and you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. bye, bye, bye now. Now. That's uh, Rita. We'll take a break. Back in just a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry with Slattery's Garage. Puck on! You can't beat experience. With over fifty years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. Oh six seven two four one 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 or slatterysgarage.ie. Fran Curry in association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie. Now, if you were listening yesterday to our dear Phil Slot with uh, Phil Prendergast, uh, one of the letter writers, um, was left traumatised, I suppose, when she realised that her partner continuously chooses to leave the bathroom door open while doing his business. Not just his number ones, but his number twos as well. Now, it had a huge reaction online. Absolutely huge. Most people saying they'd send him packing. And uh, one of the contributors online was my good friend, Joe Noble. And Joe was with me now. Good morning to you, Joe. How are you? I'm very well, Dota. I'm just reading through your correspondence online, and you, you okay. always you always make me laugh. Uh, suffice to say, you <laughs> sent him sort of packing, would you? No, I didn't say that word. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I mean, come on, like friend. I mean, okay. Years ago, when you wouldn't hear it as much now, there were flashers, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And maybe this is the new. Um, inky or whatever the dickens they call it nowadays thing to do. I don't know. Well, that's but, a whole other angle though, that he might be getting enjoyment out of the fact that... Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say, but I'm trying to put it nicely, right? Wow, um, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you don't know, maybe that's how he gets kicked. I mean, there's all sorts of different weirdos. Um, no, but I mean, if you notice he's gone up to go to, to, go to the bathroom. Yeah. Maybe. Mm. So, 
to stay below in the flipping kitchen because I'd lose the cool. I mean, if I went up and said, yeah, if he was piddling, no problem. I mean, mm. come on, like, I, I nearly got caught myself. Oh, jeez, Brad. Your men don't work on the roof next door to me. And I have an awful habit when I'm here on my own, now for a piddle. I could run in because when I have to piddle, I have to piddle. Right, so I haven't okay. time to shut, to shut doors. And what, do you leave the, the door open? But you're living on your own there, so there should be no problem. Yeah, but I'm trying to tell you, young, oh, I wouldn't do this to anyone in the house. Um, but your men was doing work on his flipping roof and his roof is looking right in. Right? Well, I nearly flipping died. But, um, no, 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 no. Uh, look at, she has to give him a hint. Mm. Well, not so much a hint. I'd be giving yeah. him a strong hint. Yeah, she hasn't said anything to him. I couldn't get over that. Wouldn't you think she'd no. have a conversation with him or something? Yeah, you think she'd cop on. I mean, the name of God, writing to somebody about her partner and poo. And, yeah. I mean, could she not kind of start it out herself? Well, um, I, I think her problem was that she left to go thinking maybe that it was a one-off or something like that, or a two-off, boom, boom. Um, but, you know, as, as it turned out, he, 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 you know, he's in the habit he of doing this now. Yeah, he continuously do, do it. Well, then I would uh, do to him what I said on, your tra- on the Tip FM trade. Yes, yeah. I would be very blunt, and I would tell him what to do, and I would what get my What you said was, tell him, close the effing door and spray some yeah. air freshener on top of it. I'm trying to be said. nice, Fran. I'm trying to be <laughs> flipping nice here this morning. Come on, like, you get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. i tell him close the effing door, and I would, yeah. but be, I would get me air freshener, and I would suffocate him with it, because I would keep my finger on it, and I would spray it in, a, in on top of him. And maybe then he'd get the hint. Yeah, I, 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 and I was asking Phil, I wonder if this is sort of common enough that people are that comfortable with each other that they leave doors open. And, and there's one thing about being comfortable with each other, as I said, if you're running up to have a pedal. Mm. But you wouldn't leave the door open if you're doing that, surely to God. Well, I, I wouldn't, no. but then again, I turned no. the other way in the bath, so, like, I'm not a good, you know... What do you mean you turned the other way in the bath? Uh, sure, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of conservative about stuff like that, yeah, I'm kind of... You know, but I don't understand that now. Come on, elaborate. Oh, don't don't you be interviewing me now. I'm interviewing you. <laughs> but I'm interested in this now. What way do you talk? No, no, no. Yeah, I'm I'm afraid of what I might see. You see, that's that's why. Don't you get me into trouble now? That's that's it, Joe. We're moving you on. Start, you <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'll have to Google that one. Um, You'll have to Google that one. You certainly will. I I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you off air what that's what that's all all about. But um, yeah, in the end, that would be your advice to the lady anyway. Would it tell him to close the effing door and? Yeah, yeah. and and use the air freshener because I mean, come on, like. Yeah. I mean, if you leave the door open, should the smell would be going all over your house? Well, it? she said nothing about the smell now, but I presume that that would be the case. I suppose. Oh yeah. Lord. God, no, 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 no. I swear, Fran, I would hop something off of him. <laughs> if if he done it, if <laughs> when I go in, we'll stay and tell him to close the <laughs> door yes. and then spray my, my air freshener. If he done it again the next day, I'm afraid I would. I'd hop something off him. Be I got, do you know, I got annoyed one time. I remember my, my ex was very untidy, like, at oh, times. Yeah. And he left his boots, his work boots, and I nearly tripped over him, right? He was gone off at the time. And now, if he's listening to him, he'll, he'll know now what I've done. But anyway, um, I, I picked up the boot. I got so annoyed, and I fired it into the room. 
I fired it too hard, Fran, and all I could see was this boat heading for the window. Oh, God. And it went, it went flying out through the window. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I thought I'm in big trouble now. And you broke you broke the glass, did you? Yeah, the boat oh went out and landed in the air. Oh, Lord God Almighty. I got fed up with picking up after Maybe she should do something like that. <laughs> Maybe throw the, throw the boot. Joe, lovely to talk to you today, and thanks, Joe. Thank you. Bye-bye. You too, friend. Cl- close bye that bye door bye now, bye. won't you, Joe? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing chocolate down a weird. Once was enough to nearly get caught. <laughs> good luck, Joe. Good luck, Joe. Bye bye to you. Now, I get to speak to two of my great friends today because Mary Gordon is with me as well. Mary, good morning to you. Good morning, friend. How are you? I'm very well, Mary. Lovely to talk to you. Um, it's a pity we're not talking about something a little more savoury. But uh, anyway, uh, what what do you make of that? That your man is so sort of <laughs> not clued in. His door is open while well, he's doing his business. Yeah. Well, I have another twist in it, friend, and it was my sister bought it up and I was on the same wavelength myself. Um, maybe he has a thing. Maybe he bought this crazy idea through his childhood. I can go to the bathroom, leave the door swinging open, and let all in sundry. I am i don't know. I didn't hear the show, friend. I had hmm. my grandson on the sleepover, but... Yeah. Had that lady kids, or was it just her and him? It seems to be just her and him, and it seems to be a relatively new relationship in terms of them living All together. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, my taking it, friend, I know people have funny quips that they carry through their lifetime, friend. I'm 72 years of age, and I will, to this day, not sleep with the light off, friend. If I go away to a hotel, if I go away anywhere in my family's house, I have to take a nightlight with me, friend, and I'm 72 years of age. Now, I know where that stems from. When I'd be naughty back in the day when I was young, my mother used to say, if you do that again, you see that tree up there up the road. She frightened the you-know-what out of me, friend. She'd tell me the booty man was in the tree, and if I didn't cop on and stop doing what I was doing, it's a bit personal. I had let's say, a habit when I was small, <laughs> even going into my teens. Uh, M- Mary, I'm sorry for laughing, but I haven't heard the expression the booty man for so long, <laughs> so many years. The booty man. <laughs> the booty man, Fred, she used to carry me out in the yard at home in Latra. I can remember it as clear as if it was yesterday. And she'd say, if you do that again, see that tree up there? The booty man will come down and get you, and that'll be the end to you. And to this day, friend, even on my honeymoon, as far back as my honeymoon, I had to have a light on, not to see who was in the bed of me, friend, just to make sure that I wasn't going to be taken off by the booty by man the, in the middle of the, the night. By the booty man, i got to remember that. So are you saying that this bad habit, as a lot of people would see it, it probably came from from what was tolerated in his own family? Is that is that what you mean, Mary? He, yeah, or maybe, you know, who knows, friend, maybe he could have been uh, locked in a shed to behave himself or locked in a room. You stay there till you... Oh, uh, I see co- what you mean now, that he has a problem you know, with locking a door. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe he's claustrophobic, friend. Maybe it's just a thing. He's not doing it on purpose. Now, personally, if I found a man in the bathroom and to throw in a bit of humour, I'd probably lock him in and keep him for a fortnight. <laughs> <laughs> But I wouldn't, as Joe said, I wouldn't, whether it's number one, number two, friend, I wouldn't be enamoured to see anyone. I had my little uh, six-year-old grandson here the other night, Mm. and he was going up to bed, and he handed me two books and read the book. Will you read the book for me, Nanny? And I said, of course, darling, no problem. 
you won't come into the room, he said, while he was changing. And his sixth friend, oh my God. and I said, and I can say I promise, I have to say, yeah. I pinky promise, where he wraps his little finger around mine, and if I do that, he knows I'm on the level. But I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't like it, but my mother, God rest her, got caught out rotten when I was living in Dublin years ago, friend. Mm. My brother-in-law and wife, God rest her, was visiting, and my mother went up to the bathroom, and she was doing her thing, but my brother-in-law wanted to go to the bathroom, and of course, the door was only, you could only see in a sling, and he pushed the door open, and my mother was inside, sitting on the throne, and she never got over the shock of it, like. Poor pet, I know. But I mean, if this man is all that the lady says he is, and he's perfect in every other way, you know, I would... As you say, friend, I'd sit down and I'd say, look, Mick, look, Johnny, um, I find it a bit inappropriate. Or even to tell him, close it out. Not lock it, friend, but to close it out. Close it out, yeah. I mean, two can go to the loo at the same time. So if she closed out the door, just tell him, just close it out. It'll make me feel more comfortable. Just do it for me. I'm sure he's not going to say, no, it's staying open, like if he's reasonable. Yeah, it's interesting though, Mary. I mean, years ago there was much more privacy because, of course, you had to go to the outhouse where 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 the toilet was concerned. So, friend, you had the toilet under the bed. I remember it oh, the distinctly. Potty. The, oh, God, yeah. the potty. Yeah, friend, we used to, and our job was to the potty was under the bed, um, or the bedpan, um, as if you had granny staying with you or whatever like. But the paw was under the bed, friend, and I remember going to Latra School with the outside toilet and the board on the top and the big hole in the middle and half the time you couldn't if, the, if it wasn't a windy day friend you'd be absolutely uh, knocked sideways with the whiff of it like and you used to throw down uh, Jay Slude and oh every sort of yoke they could get their hands on so we've come a long way since that but I mean the way I look at it is I'm a great one for second chances if he's perfect in every other way and he treats her right and he's respectful, and she's having a good time with him. I would just sit him down. He sounds like a reasonable enough man, yeah. and just say, look, uh, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. It's a private thing, let's face it. Nobody wants to see you sitting on the loo, friend, like. I know. <laughs> In and, fairness. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, maybe he finds it amusing as well. I mean, and he thinks maybe she finds it amusing, so they, they need to just communicate. Mary, can I ask you about something different? Because I'm speaking to Rita at the top of the programme. And we were talking about the referendums coming up and all of that sort of thing. But it got to talking about women then and women in the home and that sort of thing. Um, Okay. Did did your mum ever complain about her role in the home, Mary? Never, never, friend. And uh, I resonate with what Rita was saying to you because if I heard right, there was 14 in the family. There was 14 in my late mum's family, um, and most of them were born at home, friend. My God. Yeah, my mother had uh, 14 siblings. Now, some of them passed away relatively uh, young. Uh, but there was 14 of a minute. And I never heard my mother complaining about her role in the home. But, I mean, we've come a long way, friend. I mean, I I hardly know a nephew uh, now that wouldn't iron his own shirt. Mm. Uh, mm. God be with the days when it was, everything was expected. You know, uh, the woman at the kitchen sink, the woman. Yeah. Uh, it's all 50-50 now. Sink, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, pregnant at the kitchen thing, friend, but thank God that's way gone out the door now. Like, I mean, years ago, I remember when we grew up, my mother, n- nothing was too much hassle. Like, she just, I'm a mother, there was four of us in it. And Daddy, God rest him, did his bit as well, obviously. Mm. But it really was all mammy. Like, it was all the mammies back then, friend. But that has completely turned on its head. Like, that's gone. And did she ever say, you know, that she'd like to have done something else or you know did she have dreams about doing something else or was that her life did she see that as her her role and and her life mary it was like it was like a sort of an acceptance friend once you drew the picture on the blank page it couldn't be erased it was a sort of an acceptance this is it this is life uh you know women couldn't i remember her sending me and my sister is down to get Teddy. He worked in the council and he might be having a bottle of Guinness on a Friday evening after getting paid. And she'd say, You're, the dinner is ready. Will you go down and get your father? And you'd put your nose around the door of the pub, friend, but you wouldn't set foot in the establishment like. That was just the way it was back then. But she never complained. She never moaned. Even when I was working in Dublin, uh, God love her, she used to run through three fields in the morning with me at six o'clock to come back to the civil service right after a night of dancing in Las Vegas. And I never, ever once heard her saying, Christ, I wish things were different or I'd love to have done this. Or I'd... She was like a model friend. She was a very tall, elegant woman, mm. lovely dancer, uh, fantastic sense of humour. She could almost turn any situation. I mean, if she was talking to you about your men on the loo with the door open, Anything could come out of her mouth. Like, she had a fantastic sense of humour. So she never took life seriously, friend. It was an acceptance of this is life, and she had life very hard, God love her. But she never once said, I wish I... Now, she'd often say mess in life when Daddy would get in her nerves, like, as every couple does. Oh, Christ, if I only had it back, if I was only 20 again. But that was just off the top of her head, friend. There was no meaning behind that as such. I'm sorry I married you or I wish I'd stayed single or anything. It was an acceptance like this is life, this is the way it is. And I, I don't want to ask you your business completely, Mary, but could I ask you, have you made up your mind about voting in the in the referendums? I haven't, to be brutally honest, yeah, friend, because yeah. I, I'm going to come clean. I, I, it was like that lady you had done the other day. She sat down with a friend and she siphoned through it yeah. uh, so she could understand it. So no is the answer, friend, because I'm not going to... That's like not voting at all. Everyone has to have their say. We live yeah. in a democracy and everyone has the right to vote. But I, on the other side of it, friend, I'm not going to vote on something I don't fully understand. So I haven't made up my mind right. on it. All right, and that's fair too. Mary, it was lovely to talk to you, Mary. And, and look after Same yourself. Here, and thank you so much. Thanks, Mary. Thank, thank you. you, friend. God How about you now? Me. That's uh, Mary Gordon. And before that, my friend uh, Joe Noble as well speaking to us uh, this morning. We'll take a break back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. And you're very welcome back to Tip Today. Now, today is National Public Sleeping Day and there's encouragement there to uh, take a midday nap right where you are. It's a day for anybody and everybody to take a nap on a blanket uh, or wherever you are if you're 
sitting in the office, you might like to put the head down on the table or whatever. Um, National Sleeping Day, and I'm delighted to be joined now by breathing and sleep expert Patrick McCowan. Good morning to you, Patrick. Good morning, Fran. It's great to talk to you again. That idea of taking a nap, um, how, how do you feel about that, Patrick? I think if it's necessary, I think it's something that's, uh, that's quite useful. But I suppose we have to ask the underlying question, why might the person be tired in the first place? And and that's more important, is it? Because do you mean you shouldn't feel that tired halfway through the day? Is that what you're saying to me, Patrick? Well, certainly in the morning, you know, if people are waking up feeling quite unrefreshed, it would point that sleep quality isn't the way it should be and that their sleep is likely to be lighter. Now, that can be because of snoring, it can be because of insomnia, or it could be because the person is stopping breathing during sleep. Nobody should feel tired at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'll take your point. Say, for example, if you're talking on a phone all day, which is exhausting, Mm. and I think people don't realise that talking does require an effort, and people who talk for a living will tend to be more tired, even maybe yourself, Mm. you know, if you're behind the microphone for a few hours, and a nap can be warranted there, and a 20-minute nap, maybe after lunch, can be absolutely superb. You know, you come back and you're, you have a new life. Um, but have you to be careful, because I know it happens to me, I mean, if I, on the rare occasion I would take a so-called nap, if I go longer than a half an hour, I feel absolutely miserable uh, when, mm. when, when I get up and when I wake up. Yeah, and that's the sweet point. I think 20 minutes is really, really good. Um, like when we're putting out guided audios for people, we typically limit them to about 20 minutes. And it seems that if it goes over 25 minutes that you're going into deep, deep sleep. And when you wake up, you can be quite groggy. You know, yeah, it, it will really depend on the person. Um, and the other thing about taking a nap during the day is that will it impact on your sleep at night? Of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, it's a cultural thing as well, isn't it? I mean, we see in places like Spain where the notion of the siesta is part of their their day. It is, yeah, because the temperatures are too high in ah, during the midday, yeah, so course, it's not possible yeah. to work. So their lifestyle is, is very much different to ours. You know, I was there last week. Um, I was working and eating late at night, going out for a meal at 8, 9 o'clock is the norm. Mm. Um and having two to three hours of a lunch break is an norm as well. <laughs> yes. So we don't have that luxury here in this country. So, yeah, I suppose we just adapt to our cultural norms. Tell me more about why we should be concerned if we are uh, sleepy. And you've spoken to me in the past about breathing, and particularly, I suppose, if there's uh, sleep apnea involved, Patrick. Yeah, it's so, so common. And sleep apnea has just come on the radar in the last 30 years or so. It's only since the 1990s, even though... It's been written about for for decades. You know, it was first written in the Pickwick Papers. And uh, Charles Dickens, he was describing Joe, who was a fat boy, and he kept on falling asleep. And then it was called, it was actually called the Pickwickian Syndrome. And then a French doctor by the name of Dr. Christian Guimano, he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. Now, how common is it? It affects 936 million people on the planet. Wow. So it's between 25 to 50% of men, and it's between 10 and 30% of females. And a lot of the time, the person may have it, but they don't necessarily know they have it. It's usually the partner that kind of gets freaked out a little bit. You might have typically more prevalence with men. You know, the man is snoring heavily, and the next thing is he stops breathing. And then he wakes up and he's gasping for breath. So 
that may indicate, you know, it would be kind of one of the signals that somebody is stopping breathing during sleep, but it, it's only a sleep study that can that can diagnose it. And, and how, um, how serious is it? I mean, what what are the health implications of oh, it's, that? Oh, it's enormous. It's enormous in terms of productivity during the day is really affected. It's, it has a big impact on mental health. You know, people with depression have a high instance of sleep apnea. And I often wonder, is it the sleep apnea which is contributing to the depression rather than the depression contributing to the sleep apnea? And that asks another question. You know, if you have somebody who is depressed and if they're getting treated for depression but they have an underlying sleep condition that's not getting looked after, well, then there's a major part of their problem is being overlooked. So the other aspect, it puts a lot of stress on the heart drives up blood pressure and that's how it was first kind of identified back in the 70s mm. when the French doctor Guillemino, he teamed up with a cardiologist and he monitored the breathing of people during sleep with high blood pressure and he found that there was a high proportion of them they were stopping breathing during sleep and that, that drives an increased stress response blood pressure increases and at the start, it's kind of temporary or it's transient. But if the person then continues having obstructive sleep apnea, then their blood pressure becomes permanently higher. So it's implicated with high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, it could also be with neurological conditions, Alzheimer's, dementia, for example, um, fibromyalgia. So there's quite a few conditions associated with obstructive sleep apnea. It's incredible. I mean, I've discussed this in the past, with, I know, with yourself and others as well, but I, I haven't come across the link to mental health uh, before, and it does all make sense. It does. And here's the issue, the symptoms. So say, for example, if, if you have, if a person has depression, they will feel tired and they will have cognitive difficulty and they are irritable. And the same symptoms are present in sleep apnea. And because of the crossover of symptoms, and the other thing is that very often in medicine, the person is judged as different functions, and there's not a connection between how one function will affect the other. You know, we can't have a calm mind if we're having lousy sleep quality. And I think we all know that because every now and again, we're all going to wake up at a poor night's sleep. You know, the dog might have been barking, something might have been happening, and we wake up and we're lousy that day. And we are going to be more likely to be irritable. So, you know, in terms of mental health, sleep is a big, big, big one, and it often gets overlooked. And I'm not just talking mm -hmm. about sleep hygiene. I'm talking about the underlying breathing during sleep and whether the person is having a deep sleep. Now, it's not that you need 100% of the sleep time is deep, but for an adult, it should be about 25% of the time is in deep, deep sleep. But if that adult has been woken up by heavy snoring or if they're breathing faster and harder during sleep that they're woken up or if the temperature of the room is too high that they're woken up. So there's many factors, you know, and I think it's all relative. I think we're, like, I was very prone to sleep apnea all the way through my teenage years. And I was tired in school, going into university. Mm -hmm. I found it a struggle. Nobody said anything to me about it. And I think there's, it's not just adults that are affected here. There's many children. It's 5% of kids having obstructive sleep apnea. Wow. And it can be up to 15% of children having high snoring. So those kids are going to be affected academically as well. Because I always associated with people like myself, you know, of a certain age, <laughs> and, and a little overweight, to say the very least. You know, <laughs> and weight does play a part in it, Patrick, doesn't it? Yeah, there's no doubt. There's yeah. no doubt. Like, you know, as we get a bit, as you say, like, once you hit, I think, that 5-0 mark, yeah, things start yeah. to, to change a small bit. 
Um, and both in men, men and in women. So in women, sleep apnea increases 300% um, post-menopause. So maybe around the age of 50, 51, 52, 53, in around there. And with men, it significantly increases with age. So and if, if yeah, you... If, I beg yeah. your pardon. If you finally get a diagnosis, uh, if you yeah. go through all of the, the hoops to get a diagnosis, what can be done about it? Because I notice online there's all sorts of quackery going on in terms of them telling you that they can fix this and with, with yeah. various different pieces of equipment. But what what's your take on that, Patrick? Like, if you look at the gold standard of treatment, the gold standard of treatment is a CPAP machine. Yes. Now, it was invented by an Australian doctor, Colin O'Sullivan, who got the idea from a vacuum cleaner. And a vacuum cleaner sucks air. Right. And a CPAP is, air is administered via a mask or it could be a nasal cannula into the airway to help splint open the airway. So it's almost that the air is coming into the into the airways at a pressure to keep the airway open. Now, the problem with this is that the compliance rate is 50%. So, Fran, this is the shocking thing about this. The sleep industry, the best treatment that's available the compliance is only 50%. Wow. So, in other words, 50% of people will give it up probably after about six months of being administered. Well, it. it's very cumbersome, isn't it? It's cumbersome. It's awkward. You know, the people, there's kind of, a, it's not sexy. Mm. You know, there's yeah, a lead, sure, there's a yeah. mask. Um, well, some people might find it sexy, but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I think there's a role for... Dr. Christian Guimano, who coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea, he spoke about the importance of breathing through the nose during the day, breathing through the nose during sleep. Yeah. I wrote a paper with two ear, nose and throat doctors that's published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. And we looked at the everyday breathing patterns and how it impacts the phenotypes of sleep apnea. In other words, the characteristics of sleep apnea. But, you know, there's simple things that I would say to people. You said weight is a big one. I have to say. Now, it can be a vicious circle because the problem with sleep apnea is that it stimulates appetite. So if you're having poor sleep, you're more likely to eat more food, you put on weight, and that's going to feed into poor sleep. So I think we do really need to get out doing physical exercise, and I will say to people, don't do physical exercise with your mouth open. Do it with your mouth closed. You've got better recruitment of the diaphragm. You need to have good function of the diaphragm because when that happens, it will help to keep the airway open during sleep. In other words, your diaphragm is mechanically linked with the upper airway dilator muscles. In simple terms, your throat is liable to collapse. You know, it is a yeah. collapsible tube. And there are muscles in the throat that are there to keep the airway open during sleep. And you want those muscles to do their job. But those muscles are connected to the diaphragm. Now, if the person is breathing through their mouth during sleep, their tongue is in a low resting posture, they're breathing up her chest, and the throat is more liable to collapse. So this is where people can help themselves. And I know the sleep industry isn't talking about it. I spoke at the World Sleep Congress in Rome in 2022, and I said sleep medicine hasn't really moved on in 20 years. You know, so there are things that people can be doing simple simple things mm. um, including improving their everyday breathing patterns but, but it's incredible that it hasn't moved on and developed when what you described to to us Patrick I mean it's central yeah. to, to our, our physical health our mental health all of these things our relationships oh, everything yeah it's absolutely it's enormous it's huge um, you'll see it you know if you, if you google compliance of CPAP and 
Yeah, it's, it's shocking. But see, this is the complexity of the human body. You know, when, when humans, if we think we've figured out how the human body works, we haven't. You know, and even something as you could say that sleep is a, you know, it's a simple function. It's not. It's very, very complex. There's a lot of things that are feeding into it. And, you know, the conversation could even go more because if you have a child with their mouth open, that can affect the craniofacial growth of that child. And they, in turn, then can have a narrower upper airway. Not only will that child have sleep issues during their childhood, but they can carry that sleep issue all the way through their adulthood. I was one of those kids. And this is where the importance of nose breathing, and I don't want to simplify it either, but I'm Mm. saying that there is something that you can help in some way to improve sleep quality. And we have to have a conversation in Ireland about the importance of breathing through the nose. I've been talking about it for 22 years. Now it's starting to get some attention. But the problem with nasal breathing is, Fran, Mm. there's not a lot of money to be made out of it. And I'm going to be frank here. You know, we can't have an industry that's dominated solely for the pursuit of profit. So, you know, for anybody listening, um, I would look at sleep quality. It is really, really important to try and get it right. It's fascinating. Patrick, do you have a website or do you you have a a go-to place on social media that people could find out more, for example? We we do. We have, there's two websites. One is Oxygen Advantage, which is kind of high performance because we work with athletes and musicians. Mm. And of course, they need sleep quality. And the other then is Buteco Clinic, and that's um, that's also including, say, for example, snoring and insomnia and sleep apnea. But, you know, there's quite a few resources we have out there. Um, the guided meditations for insomnia, I have an app that's Oxygen Advantage, and uh, it includes the breathing programs for sleep, and everything inside it is free. So the resources are actually free for people. Very good. Oxygen Advantage. That's correct. That's, that's, that's the, app. the app. All right. Yep. Patrick, fascinating. And thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you. We Pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Francis. Patrick McCone there, international expert on breathing and indeed on sleep as well as uh, you heard. Now, a lot coming into us from my conversations with Mary and Joe and uh, Rita and all of that as well. I'll bring you that uh, a little later on in uh, the programme. But right now, news and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat, and uh, welcome back to the second hour of Tip Today. We were speaking there with uh, Patrick McCone. Uh, about sleep and napping and sleep apnea and all of that and a big response to it. We will go back to it uh, tomorrow. But Anne was on to say, Fran, I have sleep apnea and I have no weight on me, but it is horrifying trying to get a night's sleep sleep with a mask on. Yeah, I've seen that set up a few times and it is very cumbersome. I, I, I don't know how anybody can sleep. And I presume, Anne, you have to sleep on your back with it as well. So... That in itself, I would find extremely difficult anyway. Uh, another listener says, I can never get a full night's sleep. I wake at least four or five times every night. Same as that. Same as that completely. And funnily enough, since my mum passed away, uh, if I do get to sleep before three o'clock, I always wake up in or around 
three o'clock, whether it's like 10 to 3, 3 o'clock, quarter past, but it's always around uh, 3 o'clock. Anyway, 083 311 Don't forget, we'll be talking about gardening uh, towards the end of the programme. If you have a gardening query, will you get that into us as soon as you can? But right now, it's time for this. The Tipperary Village Tour. Funded by Commission Naman with the television licence fee. Ali's out and about for us with the latest stop on our village tour. Ali, where are you? Good morning, Fran. We're in Holy Cross this morning, the latest stop on our Tip Today village tour. And we're here at the beautiful Abbey and delighted to be here in Out of the Rain. Not a great day outside, but a fantastic day in here. And we have some great local groups and local people and local characters to talk to uh, between now and 11. John G, of course, joins me here as well. John G, um, always, I suppose, every time we go to a village every week, we say, but sure, of course we were going to come here. And Holy Cross is no exception. Of course we were going to come to Holy Cross. Well, I'd say we certainly had to come to Holy Cross. The problem isn't doing my virtual tour here. The problem is such riches here. What do you leave out? That's the thing. And of course, there's so much history here, which all surrounded the Abbey. But if you come in along the Turles Road, you come in, the first thing you see is the old RIC barracks on the left-hand side. And these very peaceful-looking people here, all the Piece of, they attacked it in 1920, right? <laughs> and they tried to burn it out. They didn't succeed, but they were giving a message that we rule this place. The British writ doesn't run here anymore. We can attack your barracks. And that, of course, that was probably, that was in January. That, some people think in 1920, it wasn't Salah Beg, it was 1920. That was really the start of the War of Independence. So maybe we can claim it started here as well as that in Holy Cross. <laughs> and and then we come on down along into the, into the green. And the, a village like this that isn't planned, that grew up around an abbey, it's amazing that they have a green. You associate with planned towns like Doro and that kind of thing. So you come down into the village then, and of course then, this has been greatly adorned. You'll notice that anyone coming through. And what is there is sculpture. And of course they're very lucky here, right here, they have the, you have Stone Mad and you have the sculptor Philip Quinn. And those are his creations that are up there. Now I think there's an owl and a ram in that. I think what he does is it's not his own imagination. It's the imagination of the people and he then interprets yeah. them. So he'll be able to tell you all about that as well as that. Mm -hmm. And you know then I think we all have a fear when we, and this maybe not as getting as, for me not as far away as what will happen to you in later life? And I think it's wonderful that they have the Sioux Riders here. And I always think and lots of people say it, if they could you know when the end of life comes if you could live live independently like that. It's a wonderful five-acre site like that. Mm -hmm. And some great friends of mine and great people and you, you know, spent their last days there fantastic. Then we move on down and we have a very unusual parish hall because, of course, it was the parish church for a long time and I was actually at Mass there. But then with the restoration of the Abbey in 1975, uh, it became the parish hall. And I think then that allowed, isn't that almost immediately, I think Geraldine Henshin of your parish will talk about that. It, that was the, the start then of the uh, drama festival. I think they're celebrating 40 years and it's been a wonderful place and I've had some lovely nights there and the standard of drama that you get there, I'd say to anyone it's comparable with anything you'll find in the Abbey or the Gate Theatre. Yeah. And then the centre point of the whole village of course is the Abbey. And I always think about this, when the Cistercians came into Ireland, they came in around, uh, it came in here around eight, uh, 
1180. And you see this great abbey growing up, building. When people lived in mud huts and there was tiny medieval wooden uh, built cities around, and the Cistercians came into Ireland, and suddenly it must have looked like somebody was building a skyscraper. He was amazing. But of course, the thing about that is then the Cistercians were great creators. And of course, they were very innovative, and they brought in the best of European engineering technology. And then, of course, around the Abbey grew up all these, and I think we have a man along here who may talk about that, and that's Jimmy Duggan. I think he'll know more about it. But I know that distilleries and tanneries, and of course, the monks themselves, there's a mill, and we'll be coming down to the mill then, and the mill is down there, and of course, that was innovation that was brought in from Europe, and that's where they ground their corn. And of course, the Abbey, like the Cistercians, were always very canny. So they put their abbeys. Where did they put them? They put them beside rivers. So, uh, and that was then how they ground their corn down there. But then, I mean, I remember the abbey then being there, and it was actually a ruin, and it was also a graveyard. I'm old enough to remember that. And going in there to play, and I don't know, Jimmy and those will know about this, yeah. but you could, up the you could go up the monk's staircase. You could go up the monk's staircase, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. And there was a green space out there, That's and right. you could fall off of it. There was no health and safety, but all the kids used to be out there. And then in when, I think it was Mary Willie Hayes and Bishop Morris, were they the people who, who really uh, yeah. innovated all of this and had the idea? Yes, um, I think the, the idea was to put a roof on, on, on the church that mm. Father Laffin had built. Mm. And um, Percy de Clark had, had just finished mm. Ballantubber Abbey. Mm. And uh, he suggested to the Archbishop, instead of putting the roof on, why don't you restore this wonderful mm. Holy Cross Abbey, where, as you say, we were running around up the walls, up, up on top of the, the, the monk's dormitory and so on, yeah, yeah. able to put our hand in the in the stone of the high altar that had the corrosive drop yes, dropping right. down off the roof that, 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 that. that, that, that the Queen of England uh, ordered, if you like. So, um, and uh, they took it on, and the people of Holy Cross took it on. Uh, and, and, and found the craftsmanship, and I'm sure everybody, somebody else will be talking about all this. John Burke sure. will talk about all yeah. of that later on. What a but wonderful, what a wonderful yeah, project. But, yeah. but I would go on down to the bridge then. Now, I believe that's one of the earliest medieval bridges. It's a wonderful example of a bridge. But there's a cross in the middle of the bridge. So what's the story of that? I've yes. noticed that. Well, there, I suppose there are two things on the bridge, really, um, that people pass by. So I people tend to pass by things in Holy Cross and focus totally on the Abbey, as of course we should. Mm. But the, the, the first is the plaque on the bridge, mm. that the, build, the, the, the builder of the, the bridge in 1626. So the original bridge was built uh, more or less with, with the Abbey, one of the earliest bridges. It has, on one side it has segmental arches, that is an arch that doesn't have the height the same as the radius. And uh, on the other side, then, it has uh, full arches, or round arches. Mm. And um, yeah. as Jim Hayes, the caretaker here, told me many, many years ago, that Lord Butler and Lady O'Brien were coming to meet each other in Holy Cross, and they got stuck on the bridge. Uh -huh. the, two, the two coaches got stuck on the bridge, and therefore the bridge had to be widened. And the man who widened it in 1626 was a man called Nicholas Cowley. Yeah. And he left his mark, as all good tradesmen do. Not, not a mason's mark as we have in the Abbey. He left a shield on the bridge with the, the coats of arms of the O'Briens and the Dunboyne butlers. Yeah. 
and underneath it he's, he addresses the traveller. Ad viatores. Ad viatores. Um, pray for the souls of Lady O'Brien and uh, Lord Butler and may they escape the Stygian pit of hell. Yeah. That's well, what he says. They're all very sober looking people here this morning. But you'll have to but tell I love me that, that calling uh, says spade a spade. Though, yeah. Don't you? I love, I love that calling is spade a spade. Uh, the, the, and there was, a, I mean, there was a lot of industry there, and there was a huge distillery here as well as that parish to Torch. Yes, the, the Armstrongs had an idea of planning a village up towards the green. And so it was a kind of a planned village. That was the plan. Yeah. But as it turned out, the artisan village was on the, the Cashel Road. Yeah. And all along that houses you had Joe Gleason the carpenter, you had the stonemason, you had the forge and you had the cooper as well. And the cooper then is linked into that great project, the distillery, mm. uh, built by Powers of Bally David and his wife Ellen Desmond who were buried in Holy Cross. And uh, it was a huge complex, five to seven to eight acres. He bought the land of Clarks of Greg No, that are the other great maker of Holy Cross, the mm. big house, as, as you were talking about earlier. And uh, it, it, it was a huge, huge project. And at the time, funnily enough, we didn't we didn't drink porter till after the famine. Did you know that, John? Yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah. know no, that. I mean, you're, I mean, till after the famine. I, when we were talking about drinking pints and half pints, yeah pints of whiskey and half pints of whiskey. Oh. The amount of whiskey and stuff that was distilled in Ireland in those years, I mean 1841 I think it was 7 million gallon, gallons, you know, 1843, 10 million gallons, you know. Uh, Father Matthew gave the pledge mm. to 14,000 people in one day in the square in Thurles. And did he so, put the powers out of business, was that? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it was a factor. Was it was it? a factor. Yes. Yeah, really? Father Matthew was, was a factor. And then the different laws were brought in and, and that, and eventually uh, it, it did go out of business. But the whole glory of it was that much of that weathered stone was used in the restoration of the Abbey. And that's where the stone came from? Some of it came so from it re there. It's reborn yeah. again in the reborn Abbey, isn't it wonderful? You know, and that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole thing, isn't it? The whole renewal of Holy Cross down through the centuries. But the cross then on the, the bridge, are you are not letting you get away with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a great, it's another great story because as you're walking across the bridge and if you look up at Jim, Jim Hayes' gable, you see a, a hole which is a bullet hole uh, from the War of Independence. And this was the route that crossed the tenders took out from Thurles and around up uh, and around by Cabra and, 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 and back in. Mm. And as Richard Lumley, or lo known locally as Dick Umley, was at a wake there in Cardiff, or Stakenham's there, which is Jim Hayes' house, uh, and he, he came out uh, for a pull in his pipe. Mm. And as the, the tender was coming through Holy Cross, they were letting fly at everything, and they shot him dead. Wrong, ma wrong, wrong man, well, right man may be wrong place. No, no not so much right innocent. man. No, he was completely innocent. Yeah, yes. completely innocent. And uh, my father, Lord Mercy, had a great story he, of, of coming, coming, to, coming to school the next morning with all the lads from Galbertstown coming uh, from the Yellow Lock across and walking over the bridge up to the school in the green. And there was Dick Humley's body laid out on the laid out on the bridge and the coroner was doing a post-mortem and he remembers the bowls of blood being thrown into, into the river 
and uh, I often think of all this PTSD and all that. Mm -hmm. These lads, they, they didn't, they, they saw an awful lot as 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 as, as young as young boys mm -hmm. in the War of Independence, but they were, you know, it it it, it, it didn't. I I, I, I'm not saying it didn't affect them. I'm sure they were they, yeah. they were horrified that morning. But uh, they went on to the I think it was just a tendency in those days to simply move yes, on, wasn't that? Yeah, you had yeah, to. Just to survive and look after yeah, your family, you yeah, had yeah. to. And so was there was a metal cross uh, nearer the place, uh, nearer the, the, the house, mm. uh, for many, many years. And then in latter years, when the, 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 they were redoing things, they have a small, simple cross in the middle. A lovely, lovely way, I think. You know, in, in, the, in the tradition of the stonemason here in Holy Cross. A, a lovely way of commemorating... Um, what was, you know, a, a horrific event. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy, lovely to talk to you this morning. Thank you so much. I know we could be here all day uh, talking about the sure. history. Come to Holy Cross and be here all day and, yeah. and, and you'll have one of the most enriching days of your life, really. Thanks very much. Well done, Jimmy. John, if you want to come up and join us as yeah. well, because we're at the Abbey, of course, it's not just a tourist attraction. It's used for a lot of workshops uh, in terms of school visits, education visits as well. Tell us more about that. It is, it's, it's, a, it's a very busy place. There are people here who will talk about um, things that are planned for the future, yeah. but it's used for, for retreats. It's used for uh, the, schools, the school groups all come down here. They take tours. We run a tour guide service here, um, and we run special tours for schools, and we grade worksheets for them for the age group, specific to the age group. So we take them around and we show them things, and they go away with the worksheet, and they find... Uh, things to draw and, and answers, answer simple questions that are yeah. on it. So there's a lot goes on here, yeah. In terms of, of tourism attractions, of course, we're blessed with them all over the county then. But do you find sometimes, we've spoken about that a few times, John, the way that maybe the lesser known tourist mm. attractions can be overlooked by the bigger ones because maybe Cashel gets uh, most international attention or national attention. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you find that that's improving? It is improving, yeah, because we do get quite a, a, a few people come from Cashel to here. Yeah. So we, we've been working with Falch Ireland very closely for the last 10 years um, since the Ireland's Ancient East was launched and um, we're working very closely with them and they're kind of helping us to advertise and we're, we're part of the, of the, the Ireland's Ancient East Trail. Um, so people come to Cashel and they'll hear about Holy Cross too and they've put signage in, in Cashel and, and here indeed in Holy yeah. Cross to, to direct people to other places. So it is a case of, of telling people when they come to this part of the country that there's loads to see here. Do you find, has that helped then? Because a lot of people were cynical about that when it first came out. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, COVID caused an awful problem, as of everyone course, knows, the tourism yeah. in particular. Um, and we still haven't seen a return to the large coaches um, that we had before COVID. But hopefully that will pick up again. But we have, we have more Irish visitors now than we ever had, you know, family groups um, and mm. retirement. Well, I, one thing I say is I used to have a teacher at one stage and teach heritage, and one of the best tours you'd ever get. I came along here, I had a tour from you, John, but I had a tour, tour, tour from the incomparable Carmelo O'Donnell yes, as well yeah, as that, yeah. and the wonderful Marion Ryan, and yeah. they all had different stories, but my God, could they bring the place to life? And all I would say is, most people probably don't know the tour guide services here. I think anybody who's listening to this show, I would urge them straight away, I, book a, a tour, because it is such a wonderful abbey, wonderfully ornate. It's a great Cistercian abbey, but it's very different as well, because it's one, I mean, they invested huge amounts of money, and the butlers probably did, but it, I'm amazed at it always because I always called Cistercian abbeys like Ryan eyes, you know, that mm. they were all the same. They were built yeah, the same, same as 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 uh, Ryanair. But Holy Cross somehow with the Sedili and the Waking yeah. Beer and all that, it's so ornate. It's very different. They had money, those it's, guys. Oh, it's very different. It is, and um, there's so, as you said, there's so much here. I think it was when the when the butlers were patrons of mm. the abbey. Mm. Um, 
particular the, the fourth Earl James Butler, the White Earl, uh, uh, the first half of the 15th century, there was huge um, investment in, in here. There was a restoration done at that time, and all the beautiful stone carved carvings that you see in the Abbey, um, that was all from that period. The, the rib vaulting in the, in the ceilings, the sedilia, mm. the waking beer. They're fantastic pieces. But you mentioned the tour there. What makes the tour of Holy Cross Abbey really special is that our guides are all volunteer guides. Mm. So they come here with a real passion for, for passion what, the story and for the history of the place. And they share that with everyone. And you mentioned Carmel and, and Marion and the difference. And myself, you, you heard three different versions because yes. there's so much here that you could, you know, you, you, the tour will take it wherever the people want to, mm. to go, whatever their interests are. Whether it's an architectural interest or a history or a religious, we can we can cater for all those groups. So there's yeah. so much here. But you're right, people should should book a tour here. Just get onto the parish office and book a tour. Is it still very popular for wedding photos? Oh gosh, yeah. There's the house in Tipperary <laughs> that doesn't have a wedding and photo. Further afield, further afield, I'm sure as well. Yeah. I often, I often when I'm when I'm um, giving a tour, we, we look back up the abbey and you see the, the the floor rising to the back, and I often wonder. Did, 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 did many photographs were many photographs taken of brides and, and grooms slipping coming down there because it's quite steep, you know, right. um, and to be walking down there in front of the camera. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's lovely to hear it's still a very popular spot. Oh, it is, yeah, very, very popular. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, very popular for weddings, yeah. Oh, very good. Lovely to talk to you today. I know we're probably going to come back yeah. to you as well. Tom, come on up here. How are you doing, Tom? The last time I spoke to you, we were looking for owls, weren't we? Yes, we were. We were. Barn owls. Barn owls. How uh, yeah. is that going, actually? Going very well. Well done. I'm part of the Barn Owl Monitoring Group for Birdwatch Tipperary. Yeah. So, uh, this year, well, the year just gone by, in 2023, in the same area as we did in 2022, we had an increase of one-third. That's fantastic. Uh, unbelievable. They had, had <clears throat> excuse me, a good winter. Yeah. the year before. Are we, we're still the highest in the country when it comes to Barnow population. Yeah, one of the highest counties. Yeah. I think we have about a quarter of the Irish population of Barnows from, from in the whole country, yeah. which is great. And it's growing. And the interest, uh, there are four of us in, in the group, uh, Anya Lynch, um, Galen Purcell, uh, Liam Crow and myself. Now, Liam Crow is probably the hero of it all because he voluntarily makes the owl boxes mm. at cost and gives them out to farmers. Uh, he's approaching about 100 boxes at the moment. Wow. Going, and they're gone all around the county. And we can't forget, it all started from a class discussion in a school in Ballycahill, didn't it? It did, actually. Incredible. Kevin Collins came to the school about 1994, which is exactly 30 years ago, and he gave a talk to the children. He had them eating out of his hand. He really caught their imagination about the owl. And the kids did a project then, straight away, and they submitted it for uh, a national project run by, or sponsored by ESSO, which was a petroleum company at the time. And they, they won the national award for that and of course that uh, started the whole project the children came back from after winning their award and they said they'd need to do something for the barn owls. so they got six teachers and they put them up around Ballycahill area it was Ballycahill school and they put them up around Ballycahill area and we never thought about those again for about another 10 or 12 years and then John Lusby from Birdwatch Ireland came to inspect the boxes and out of the six four had been occupied for a long time Brilliant. Yeah, so it ha that, that's how the nest box... And that, just as a matter, you know mm. the Coralew and the Hen Harrier are mm -hmm. all endangered species. Yes. Is the barn owl under pressure as well? Or, you know, are, I, you know yeah. to the yeah. same extent outside Certainly. of Tipperary? Certainly. In 1994, uh, we had no barn owls at all in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland? Six none, counties? None, in the six counties. Absolutely none. Uh, they're back. Mm. But that's because of the conservation measures that have been taken. And we're... we're 
begging farmers, please let your hedges grow. If you let the hedges grow the fruit and flower, they feed the little voles and shrews that the owls feed on. Yeah. And then there's a huge explosion in biodiversity if you let the hedges up. Somebody said to me, actually Liam Cross said to me, he said, Tom, I'd put it on your tomb, let the hedges up. <laughs> so bird life is under pressure, though, generally all over the world, and particularly in Ireland, isn't it? It and is. Would it be it is. generalisation Yes, yes. There? And that's from intensive farming. It's from uh, the plethora of chemicals that we use. Mm -hmm. And the barn owl is at the top of the food chain. Mm -hmm. And we can learn from them that those pesticides are building up in their tissues. Mm -hmm. So if they're building up in their tissues, they're building up in ours. It's a warning sign for our health ourselves. Yeah. yeah. What we're also going to talk to you today is folklore, because I know you're, you're, you've huge interest in local folklore. Um, what I hate seeing is the local folklore stories tend to be lost over the generations. And I know you, you've played a pivotal role in keeping those stories going through uh, the generations. So they're there for, for future generations as well. Can I ask you, put you on the spot, <laughs> what, what's some of your, your favourite folklore stories locally? Oh, the local one, of course, again, to do with the Abbey. Do you know, and it connects Holy Cross and Ballycahill. Right, so it's the story of the King and Queen of England uh, sent their son to Ireland to collect... Peter's Pence, which is a collection for the Pope. And his mother gave him a ring. And the prince was more told, if you get into trouble, let us know, send the ring back. And as he was passing through O'Fogarty ter territory, three miles north of the abbey, uh, <clears throat> uh, he was attacked and killed by the O'Fogarty's. Now, he was a Norman prince. You can see why. And he was buried in a shallow grave, and nothing was heard of him for two years. And then a monk here in the abbey uh, who was blind, had a vision three nights running that there was a body buried in a clearing in the woodland where a white boar was grazing. So after the third night's vision, he went to the abbot and the abbot said, go and take a helper and find where the spot is. So they did. And three miles north of the abbey in Ballycal, a place called Bula, they, they found a clearing in the wood with white boar grazing and the hand sticking above the ground and on the hand was a ring. So the moment the blind monk touched the, the prince's hand, his sight was restored. So the, they exhumed the body and buried it in the grave of the good woman's son, already mentioned as Sedelia. And they gave him a Christian burial there. And the place where the, the prince had been buried, a well sprung up and had a cure for eyes, of course, because it's associated with the blindness. Yeah. So that well is still there today. We're hoping that for the 50th anniversary of the Abbey restoration, we will do a pilgrim walk to that well. Oh, lovely. And connect the, the two ends of the parish. It would be a lovely thing to do. Yeah. But anyway, when the, when the monks took the ring across to the Queen <clears throat> and told her what had happened, she cursed the Ophogates. And her words are, they'll grow like swine and wither away like bracken for the want of male heirs and that a corrosive drop, and Jimmy already mentioned this, that there's a corrosive drop will drop on their tomb in Holy Cross Abbey yeah. until the last male heir died. So uh, she wasn't good at the curse because it took about 600 years for the last male heir to die. <laughs> and is there a story so, about how the true cross came here related uh, that, to that? That's related to that. Then. Yes. And then when she calmed down, the Queen said to the King, give them the relic of the true cross. And he said, no, I will not. Uh, I give them land, I give them gold, but I'm not giving the precious relic. Mm. So uh, she again flew into her age, 
uh, if it was Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, she was likely to fall, fly into a rage anyway. But uh, she, she uh, flew into rage, she tossed her hair in anger, she went on her bended knees and she said, on my bended knees and with unkempt hair, I will not rise from this place and accept no refreshments of food or rest, but pine away in mourning and sorrow till your majesty assents to my pious wishes. Wow. Isn't that beautiful royal language for I'm going on hunger strike, your majesty? You know, so, uh, she then, said it didn't he, she? <laughs> the king gave in and he said to the monk you can't you can't take this relic out of my realm so the monk cut an incision in his thigh he hid the six inch relic inside the wound he lore for the cross to England and as they, walk, as they travelled from Waterford Harbour all the way to Holy Cross Abbey every church they passed the bells rang out out of respect for the relic. Oh. And when they came here, the five bells on the abbey rang out of their own accord. Yeah. And the relic fell from his leg, the wound healed over, and they enshrined it. We think they enshrined it or, or uh, displayed it where what we call the waking beer is. So that's how the relic is supposed to have come. That's the, that's the folklore story that was written here in the abbey in 1640 by Brother Malachy Hartree. The real, the real story has to do with King Queen and Richard the Lionheart, which is another day's story. Yeah, I w we might go into that another day, Tom, but lovely to talk to you <laughs> okay. today. Thanks so Thank much. Thanks, We're going to take a quick break from Holy Cross and we'll be back after this. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecone, you can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie The Tipperary Village Tour funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee Welcome back to the Tip Today Village Tour. We are live at Holy Cross Abbey this morning, showcasing the wonder and the beauty that is Holy Cross. Uh, Michael Long from Cabra Wetlands joins me now. We were talking to Tom, um, and Tom, of course, a, a great advocate for everything environmental. And, of course, in Cabra Wetlands, I've been lucky to be there a number of times. Tell us about the role of the wetlands, maybe, for anyone who isn't aware of it. Well, maybe just to say, to start, a lot of the people here have connections with Cabra Wetlands. Um, Look, I suppose the role of it really is, uh, in, in, a, in a word, would be a focal point within the county, really, for drawing attention to, to, the, to our need, really, to pay more attention to, to, the, to our environment mm -hmm. and, and uh, how we might live differently in, in, in the world around us, really. That's essentially what it's about. Yeah, and tell us about the, the walks and environmental tours that you do there. Well, um, we're trying to... I suppose we had done our name for Cabra Wetlands. Cabra... The old Irish word for Cabra is a swamp. It's a swamp. Um, I suppose it's kind of interesting, and maybe just to say at the beginning, that, you know, uh, until maybe 30, 40 years ago, wetlands were seen as places of no value, really. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, if you look at old maps, there were several attempts, that they made to drain that area back over the years. Um, it's kind of interesting, if you look at the last 30, 40 years, I think our... Our, if you like, how, how we have changed our view of wetland is almost like the story of how we're 
gradually begin to maybe reappreciate the world around us and our place in the world around us and maybe our need to live in a more sustainable way in the world around yeah. us. Um, because initially back when the, the, the Cabra Wetlands was connected to the sugar factory and excess water from the process of, of the beet process went out into what is a natural wetland. And then when the sugar factory closed, a few local, actually essentially gun clubs came together and uh, they had their own ideas at the time. But they did a really, really valuable thing and that was they secured 14 acres initially. Hmm. Otherwise, it was, th this next suggestion was that the town dumped there because wetlands were seen as no value. Yeah. But they really, I think that was a, that was a key intervention, really. Um, and then over the years, I suppose we have managed at the, at the moment with the aid of grants and so on, we have we have probably about 80 acres of wetland now for conservation. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and it is valuable. Uh, you know, I suppose looking at figures, I think globally we've drained about 65 percent of our wetlands in the last 50 years. In Ireland, we've drained about 75 percent. So we're so ahead of the game. We're a bit ahead of the game and it makes what we have quite valuable. Yeah. If you think of things like um, I was down in Clanmel just yesterday at a little workshop and I was saying to the people there, you really should be grateful to us up here because we're holding back all the water. <laughs> you, you'd be flooded out of it twice as much only for we're, yeah. we're up here. So, because wetlands are a kind of a natural flood control mechanism yeah. in the landscape. And not only that, but there's flora and fauna that, that started growing in Cabra that had never been really seen before. It was just when the land, the land was left to grow of its own devices. Well, it, it is a natural site. So, yeah. I mean, as I said, it is a flood control. It does recycle water. Water is so critical at the moment and it's under such pressure. And they are natural biodiversity hotspots. Of course they are. In fact, Kevin Collins was mentioned earlier. Kevin would, would say he's involved with Birdwatch Ireland. He would say about about 2,000 birds over winter in Cabra Wetlands. Mm. You might see them any given day, but they use that as a place for, for security and for food and so on. And are the wetlands under threat in the sense of global warming? I mean, will that have an effect on the environment as well? I mean, in, in the past it was artificial drainage that affected those. And I remember when I was a young lad and, you know, seeing books there who are say, uh, magazines come here and said there's grants now to drain all that land, cut all those hedges, bulldoze them out. We've changed now but is it under threat now from the natural change in the weather? Or it, it might be. In fact about five years ago we had we got in some, some people to look at it and there was a concern that it was drying out a bit. We have to keep an eye on that mm, I think yeah. that mm. keep the water levels um, uh, right if you like for it. So we might have to do some small intervention but for the moment I think it, it's not, it's, not, it's not immediate, but yeah. it's something you need to keep an eye on, for sure. Oh, for such a life-giving, it's yeah. to all flora and fauna, isn't it? It's wonderful. And just last week, we had our, our hatch of um, frogs in the pond laying their spawn. And, and I love to see the frogs in the spawn, because they are kind of the canary in the coal mine, I think, for water quality. Yeah. If you have frogs, it probably means your water is, is quite good. Um, so, so in that sense, I mean, that's, that's an important thing, you know. But we are trying to, I suppose, the original people there did a very good job. They, they, they set out a threefold vision for Cabra Wetlands, which was conservation, and I'm talking about recreation, and education. And I think those, that threefold vision serves the place quite well. Yeah. Um, around education, we do work with, with schools, and we do, we're a primary science provider for primary schools, we do field study with secondary schools. So we'd have the kind of equipment for, for field study work. And in recent years then we put in what we call a cosmic walk, which is which essentially our creation story as we understand it now um, is based on four wisdoms. The wisdom of science, the wisdom of women you'd be glad to hear, yeah. and the wisdom of indigenous people and the classics. 
Um, I'm, I'm very, uh, you were talking about story earlier, like I really think story is key. Just yesterday the European Parliament passed the nature restoration law and, and about, but story is key in all of this in the sense that, um, you know, what our story is telling us now is that the earth works because it all works together, that's why it works. Yeah. It's a man called Thomas Berry that I studied under, he would say it can be best understood as a communion of subjects rather than a collection of objects. Yeah. If the world was only people, it wouldn't work. It, is a, it has emerged over the last four billion years as an interdependent community of life. Mm. And that's what we have to keep an eye on. Earth is primary. Yeah. We're just arrived. And uh, we're, we're trying to find our place in the family of things, but we're... We're struggling a bit. Well done for all your great work there. Thanks so much for that, Michael Long Thanks, from Cabra Wetlands. Give him a hand, lads. Hey, on, Michael. Sadie Dwyer, lovely to talk to you this morning. Thank How you are you? very much. Good, thank you. Because, of course, we're here at the Abbey uh, this year, next, next year, the 50th anniversary of the restoration. Just give us some background to that. I mean, the amount of work that, that went into that and, and since that has yeah. been incredible. Well, um, I started to work here in 1971 at the very start of the restoration of the Abbey Church. So my four years working here was totally involved in the restoration of the church. And um, the amount of work that was done, it was incredible. Um, when I started here at first, um, the Abbey Church, as we know it now, was actually a graveyard. Yeah, I remember it, yeah. yes, and I remember it well. all of the uh, process had to come into place mm. to get permission from all the parishioners to have the remains reinterred, and that was duly done. And it could never have been done without the permission of the parishioners to allow that to happen. Yeah. And um, like basically, it was there was no roof. There was no roof on anything. And, and to see the work evolving over the four years, I literally saw every bit of the work going on and it was amazing. And the team of workers that were here and the, the fundraising, I was involved in the fundraising and it was a diocesan project. So the whole diocese was involved in the fundraising and we send out people all over the diocese and people from all over the place came in and helped with that yeah. and that was vital. Uh, to fund it. Oh, would it, would it be true to say that there was no grants whatsoever involved? You didn't get any grants, is no, that right? Everything had to be raised. Yeah. It's not like today where you can get 70-80% grants and some no, things. It was you a different, do everything from scratch. It was a different time like, and, yeah. and these things weren't in place then, you know. So it was just basically the parish needed a new church and it was going to be a question of restore the old church, which is now the hall, or re-roof this one yeah. and I suppose it really started off you know at a smaller scale but it, it turned out to be a much bigger project Incredible. like you know and also from the in the 70s a bit like today costs really escalated mm -hmm. and I suppose from when the star work was uh, projected cost it went much higher mm -hmm. next no. year then as i said is the the 50th anniversary right. what plans are there then well, to mark that clear uh, ryan is here now clear is the is the chairperson of a special group we have got together and uh clear and her colleagues and all of us together i'll be coming to you yeah, yeah come on Claire, come on up and tell us about it actually yeah there are great plans uh, for and um, thanks to clear and all the committees she has put together and we're all doing our own little yeah. Bit. So we have subcommittees within the main committee and yeah. we're all doing our vision. 
Yeah, well done, Claire. Tell us about that. What is planned for next well, year? Well, uh, we have a number of projects in operation at the moment. How we're set up, we have a core committee and they define strategy and identify projects that are required to expedite on our goals and objectives. And we also meet once every two months with the wider community to give them an update and, to, of course, to get feedback. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there might be projects out there that people would identify that we wouldn't have thought of. So we have a number of projects in operation at the moment. Currently, uh, one is uh, under Heritage, Build Heritage, and we're very, very lucky to have such great people like the Guides, Stone Mad, that are feeding into that. We also have a project on remedial uh, work, looking at the fresco and how we can improve that. But again, we're very, very lucky to have people like Seamus Cross, Pat Conley here, and Catherine Moraid, who are continually working on the Abbey to make sure it's kept in a fit state. Uh, we also have an events team, and the events team have put together a guide plat of a guide plat of events for 2024 and we'll be expediting on the first event on the 9th of March so on the 9th of March we're going to actually have an afternoon tea up in, this is called the dormitory so people will be getting their old china that they used to lovely. see in the presses yeah. uh, at home that you couldn't touch and lovely eateries as well. We'll follow that on then I uh, in the end of May and we're going to do um, a film up here now, the film is actually, we're very, very lucky that in 1972 to 1975, um, RTE came down and did a doc documentary. So the film clippage is absolutely amazing. So you can actually see the story as it unfolds about how the restoration took place. So I would say to anyone, come on the night, everybody is welcome. So there'll be information going out on that later on. Towards the end of the year, then, we will be putting on, first of its kind, a concert in the Abbey. So we'll be bringing in an orchestra and we'll be bringing in um, some key artists, of which I can't tell you who oh. they are, so you're going to have to turn up. Oh. Uh, so, and then, towards the end of the year, um, we're going to uh, celebrate Willie Hayes. Willie Hayes was instrumental in the restoration. His footprints are all over the Abbey. So it's, we're going to do an event to acknowledge his um, work, we were very lucky to have him. Yeah. So that's just our starting yeah. point. And he was actually, of course, the priest in the Abbey yes. at that yeah. stage, isn't yes. that right? Yes. And he was so passionate about yeah. it and so yeah. passionate about history. Yeah. And unfortunately, we lost him this year, but I think this is fitting and I think it will be a fabulous yeah. event. And we're very, very lucky to have Stone Mad here, Philip. Yeah. Absolute talent talent so um, they're mad about you Philip yeah. go on Jordan yeah. give him a hand there you're much loved yeah. so we will unveil a bust that Philip will have created so we're very excited Fantastic. about that so anyone who's looking for information on what's coming up where's the best place we're to go or keep go, an eye out well um, we will be putting out a calendar of events in the near future but if you need to know anything about what the Jubilee Committee uh, is doing I would say give Catherine a ring in the office she'll kill me. <laughs> She's Perfect. fantastic. Thanks so much for okay, that and we look forward you. to it. I'm sure we'll be able to hear more of what's what's coming up over the okay, years. So wish you, you all the much. best with it. Margaret, come on up to me. You're waiting all morning. How are you, Margaret? Hi, how are you? Good. Of course, Holy Cross 
What it's also aside from the Abbey, I'd say number two of what it's most known for now is the Cutloose Festival. I think so. And yeah. um, look, at it is a great event in the calendar, not only just for the parish and community here, but maybe for the country music fans, not only in this country but abroad. Yeah. And we have seen people from Scotland, England and all over Ireland coming here and we're getting great feedback. It's amazing how yeah. big it's getting every year. Yeah, Does that is. get a bit daunting though or is it exciting? Well, I think it's exciting really. Yeah. Um, I think we have over the years learned our few lessons with regard to how to run this festival and um, we are blessed to have a really good committee and we have learned exactly what we need to do and of course nothing would happen without all the volunteers. I mean on the day we have approximately 200 volunteers and they range in age from, I'm not exaggerating, from seven-year-olds to 70, 80-year-olds. Wow. You work them hard here in Holy Cross. Oh, yeah. Sure. Look, at I, I do get a great kick out of seeing, I have a vision here now of Mikey Ryan sitting on a chair at the stand, keeping a very close eye on the parking of the disability and the uh, area. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then the young lads going around picking up rubbish all day long. Yeah. Is it true that when you started off, you were ringing up the artists and they wouldn't maybe always even return your calls? Now they're ringing you. They, there's Absolutely. more artists looking to play here than you can accommodate. Am Absolutely. I right? That's, that's a measure that, of your that, success. That, that, that is a fact, yes. And you look, at it is... Full, full compliments to the committee and yeah. what they're doing. Uh, where are we now in terms of planning for this year's event? Well, uh, there would be initial kind of plans made last year after the event and over the next month there will be everything will be confirmed and okay. you'll, you'll be seeing it on Tip FM. And we can't wait. Can any drop us any old hints? Who's, well, who's coming this year? Well, I can't, I can't divulge that information. Ah, no. <laughs> Sorry. No. But I can tell you all roads lead to um, uh, Holy Cross GA field on the 14th of July. Tell me about the GA as well, because I know you're going to talk to me about that. Uh, like many villages across this county, big GA scene here in Holy Cross as well. We have really, and I suppose, look at it, it's in no small measure to kind of all the people are involved there again. And also, I suppose, since 2005, we put in the John Diet Centre, we built and developed that. And I think that has had a huge impact on the involvement and the people that are in it. And um, it is... Uh, kind of it's it's what would I say about the centre what we have is we have now a recreational facility yeah. I suppose you'd like to say between the two pitches the astroturf the walkway it's a great thing because yeah. we were talking about that before a lot of pitches developing that now and it brings in the community of people that maybe might necessarily been interested in GAA absolutely I mean yeah. you see young mothers with their prams walking around and then you see young people going into the gyms you see them on the astroturf you see uh, more senior people like myself going Way out walk about that. going walk about <laughs> and of course we have look at we have two gyms, um, Julian Dunn and Mick King, and both of them going, doing really well and able to facilitate every age profile. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Wish fantastic. you all the best for the Thank year ahead. Anyway, well done. Thank you, Geraldine. I've met you one or twice before. Haven't oh, I? Just a few times, <laughs> Ali. How are you? This Tell morning? me about the drama festival. Well, the drama festival, you know, if it's March, it has to be drama in Holy Cross. There's always a drama going on in Holy Cross. Yeah. <laughs> but the one on the, the stage, North, definitely but the one on the is, stage. Is, is the time to be in Holy Cross for drama. Yeah, the drama, our 40th year is uh, this year on the starting on the 15th of March. That's incredible. 40 years. Yeah, 40 years uh, since 1983. It was originally in Thurlis and then when um, then it was literally moved 
moved out to Holy Cross after that mm. in 1983. And some of our um, founder members are still there. Um, Donald Duggan is still the festival director. And, um, you know, it's, it's just gone from strength to strength every year. Um, we're very lucky in Holy Cross because um, there's 37 festivals across the country. Mm. And we're the only one in Tipperary. Wow, really? Uh, yeah, Kildare has three and Cork has two. There's other counties with multiple ones, but uh, the only festival in Tipperary is in Holy Cross. Tell us what's on the schedule for this year then. Well, there's a, you know, there's a great, um, great uh, variety. Uh, we start on Friday night with our own group, um, Holy Cross Ballycal, doing Dancing at Lunasa. They've just had a run here the last few days and it's been sellout. It's been fantastic. They've done extremely well. So they're starting off on their circuit. Um, you know, you have to you do eight festivals. Or... I know, oh, I know. I managed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah, the, like the whole thing about festival, you have to do, you don't have to do, you, you can do a maximum of eight festivals. Um, you have to kind of win two and you'd be guaranteed two wins and maybe two seconds, which will get you to the All-Ireland. Really? Um, yeah, so they could be, I know Holy Cross are going from, um, Holy Cross are going, they're starting out in uh, Roscommon, they're going to West Cork, they're going to Kildare, they're going um, Clare Galway, you know, so it's a huge commitment. It is a huge commitment. Huge How many commitment. members in the group then? Well, in the group, the, the, the actual drama group yeah. itself, there could be maybe, I think we have about 20, 25 members. But out of that, there's very, very few going on yeah. the circuit. You know, people just can't commit anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, I suppose life has just gone so fast and work commitments, children, everything just gets caught mm. up, you know. Yeah. Um, but they're doing it and uh, they you know, they could arrive back at one or two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You and know, it's all for the love of the stage, really, isn't the next it? Day. Yeah. It's all for the love of the stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of the programme then yeah. for this year, yeah. where can people get more details on it? Well, there's a website, www.tipperarydrama.ie. Um, we have flyers out everywhere and we have road signs out. Um, there's, we don't um, book seats because the hall is so big, yeah. it's impossible. Um, but we have season tickets, which are very reasonable. Very reasonable. 70 euro for nine nights of drama. Um, or you 15 euro per night, uh, so really the 70 euro is great, great yeah. value. Um, so yeah, we have Moyne as well from Tipperary. Um, there's only actually, would you believe, there's 30, 35, 35 drama groups in County Tipperary, and out of 35, only three or four compete. You know, yeah. Holy Cross, Thurlis, Nina, and Carrick. Um, and oh, Moyne as well, I apologise to Moyne, they're just starting out. Um, but this year there's only Holy Cross and Moyne are, are uh, competing. Yeah. You know, it's difficult to go on every year, of very course. hard. We yeah. wish you continued success. Thank you Break so a much. leg as well Thank through you. your head, well done. Um, Liz and Philip then, come on up here and join me. Philip, lot of talk about you all morning, Philip. Listen, tell us about about your work in sculpture. Um, well, we work in uh, stone and wood, and um, work generally around the county. And we've made pieces for above in the Cabra Wetlands as well yeah. on the Cosmic Walk with Tom and Michael. There were 
between it's a like we, we carve stone and wood but it's a whole family thing like we, yeah. Liz and myself do it and then our kids and all fall in at it as well so we also work with groups and the pieces around the village here where uh, there were, that was um, by the development association kind of got that going the pieces that are carved from the abbey like I all had a little story pieces. here too by the way right. you remember before you came along for some reason fans seemed to lose enthusiasm for all this walking one day we'd been walking the high king's loop in Cashel and it was raining and it was wet and everything else and uh, you know kind of would be finished up with it the next thing anyway we came along and we found on the side of the route there was this huge head of a bull with a ring in his nose and Fran said me, what's that about? And I said, well, I don't know, you know what it is. And then I was talking about the bull of Cooley, but maybe, you know, it's down there. So anyway, uh, we didn't sort it out anyway there. So will you tell us what is the significance of the bull outside Cashel on the High King's Wall? The bull, it's kind of, when we went up to look at the spot for it, it's, it's a real cutaway and would skin you, like, you know. So it's kind of, we're looking at different things in the rock inside in Cashel. There are two different bulls, but both of them look kind of almost Egyptian or something. Something. So we thought we'd carve just a big bull's head. It's it's nearly nine tons weight, mm. and it's um, Lizzie gilded the horns on it. So it's twenty three carat gold. Lizzie and Eve gilded wow. the horns on it. But um, it's to do with like the bull and the bear economy, and it being a market town as well. Like there's a lot of things around the bull, and then the gold to do with Fidelma and her golden calves or golden cows. Mm. It was she had. But I reckon there had to be a golden bull somewhere. But well, she's a great you know. woman because she's yeah, married yeah. to Amanda Stone Mad, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, Jenny, man. Yeah, how long has Stone Mad been up and running now? Harrow, we kind of just took the name from Seamus Murphy's book there back whenever, I don't know, 30 years, I yeah. suppose now, yeah. 30 years, but um, it was after reading Seamus Murphy's book, the famous cock sculptor, Yeah. Uh, it was given as a present to me, and... Uh, that's how we just took the book, but sure, there are loads of people stoned. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Loads, there's a lot of them in the room. Uh, there. Liz, can I ask you as well? I, you know, I was so interested to hear the story about the cows and the Queen's cows. The Tell cows, me about the Highland cows you have. Cows, yeah, we have, um, they're not a herd of cows, they're a fold of cows. If you have Scottish Highland cows, they're known as a fold. And they're the beautiful long haired, long horned. Yeah. Yeah, I often stunning. say if you were going to draw a cartoon of a cow, this is what you'd come up with. Yeah. They're very short legs, long red hair and enormous horns. Um, despite the look of them with the horns, they're actually very peaceful, placid animals. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're really good for biodiversity. I know we've mentioned that a few times this morning with a few great advocates here, champion stalwarts for biodiversity around. These cattle are excellent for the land. Uh, they're very good to eat the thatch of grass and they allow a lot of the natural wildflowers to come back on the land. And tell me how you came in possession of them. Well, we had a smallish fold and we wanted to expand it slightly. So. Uh, it's a very long story. I won't uh, bore you with it this morning, but we eventually came across two very special cows and they came from the herd, the fold, I should say, of Queen Elizabeth in Balmoral Castle in Scotland. So, um, poignantly, I suppose, it was the morning that Prince Philip died that we were taking our cattle from Balmoral Cat um, Castle. So there was a cattle truck driving out through all the television cameras wow. and everything else with our uh, two very special cows in there so we've had we've been very lucky we've had a few heifer calves from those two cows and they've actually gone up to very close to the hill of tara mm. so i like to think that the 
uh, royals from Scotland yeah. are now with the ancient royals of Ireland up around Tara. It's beautiful. It's almost come full circle, really, exactly. is it? Yeah. And that's where we leave it. I'm afraid we're out of time for Holy Cross. We could have given it another hour. Sorry, Fran, I know I'm over time again. But from everyone here in Holy Cross, thank you so much for joining us and telling us your story this morning. Well done. Back to you in studio, Fran. Well, thanks very much indeed, Ali. And thanks to everybody taking part in that wonderful programme from one of the most beautiful places, indeed, in the county, lovely Holy Cross. News and information is coming up. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecan, your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, Call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat. Uh, welcome back to the final hour of Tip Today, 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number if you want to uh, give us a call. It's not going to cost you. And, of course, you can text and WhatsApp. And uh, we have gardening at the end of this hour. If you have a gardening query, log in with us, please. 0833-111-3311. And uh, just to remind you that at any time at all, you can email us, and that's tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, I was asked to give a mention to that brand new dance that's happening at Fitzpatrick's in Clonmore, just outside of uh, Templemore. Kicked off a great style uh, last week. And uh, my friend uh, John Malloy the entertainer and singer. He is uh, heading that up and he's putting it all together. He's there tonight himself along with uh, Glenn Flynn and uh, Noel Briody as well. So it's a great night of dancing. It's kicking off, I think, about nine o'clock tonight. Um, Fitzpatrick's in Clonmore, if dancing is your thing. We're delighted to have uh, teamed up with Vodafone to promote their high digital initiative. Now, do you want to know how you can learn online skills for everyday life? Well, Vodafone Foundation in partnership with the organisation alone. They've created this kind of online skills training for older people and the training is available online at highdigital.ie or indeed via in-person classes with the right support. You don't have to be scared of technology and you can I suppose embrace it as well and uh, have a listen to uh, this morning's tip from our Shay. Here's an online safety tip brought to you by High Digital. Free online skills for everyday life supported by Vodafone Foundation in partnership with Alone. When using the internet you should be mindful of scams and frauds. Scams are when someone tries to trick you. A fraud is when someone tries to steal from you. These dangers come in many forms. Common ones include messages pretending to be from tech support, requiring personal information from you, social and romance scams, asking for financial aid, and grandparent scams, where scammers may impersonate a loved one in distress requesting money. Scams and frauds try to exploit our personal nature of gaining through an opportunity or avoiding a loss or wanting to help others. Be aware of potential scams and frauds. If you would like to learn more about how to identify these, visit highdigital.ie or call 1-800-203030 for more information. Brought to you by Vodafone Foundation and Alone. Thanks, Shay. And do you know that tomorrow is Bachelor's Day and it's also known as Ladies' Privilege Day? Well, Leanne is with me in studio to talk to me about this. Good morning to you, Leanne. Good morning. Um, what is Bachelor's Day? 
So it's an Irish tradition where women are allowed to propose to men on Leap Day. So that's tomorrow, the 29th of February. And it's based on the legend of St. Bridget and St. Patrick. And it actually once was legal, had legal basis in Scotland and England. So the story is that St. Bridget went to St. Patrick and said that women are unhappy that men are taking too long to propose. <laughs> so this is meant to be in the 5th century. Some things never change. <laughs> yeah, so they were not happy about it and they went to her and she went to St. Patrick and he said, that's okay, the women can propose every seven years. And she went back again and said, no, they're still not happy. So he said, okay, once every four years on leap day, the women can propose to the men. My God. Is is this still relevant, though, Leanne? I mean, is it still happening? I don't think so. I think up in America, up until the 1980s, it was a massive thing. Um, but then people were saying it was, it was a farce, that it was men were making fun of women, desperate women were coming forward on this day. Um, so I think in today's society, with the way things are changing, I think that women feel like they can propose any day. I think it's kind of funny, even in this, the tradition, if a man rejects the woman, he has to buy her a gift. So 12 pairs of gloves to cover the fact she has no ring on her finger or a new dress. So I think that even at that, um, I don't think that would pass now today. If someone rejects you, I, they I reject don't think you. So, so well. <laughs> and is, is it the same thing? I mean, would she go down on one knee? And is there a ring involved? And how, how does that work if the woman proposes? Yes, so it was traditionally they would. In Scotland now, the woman had to wear a red petticoat while proposing um, to show basically that she was desperate and that she was going for the man. Um, but yeah, they'd get down on one knee and if the man said no, he'd have to buy her a gift. But people in Ireland, especially up until the 1980s, even 1970s, people would rush to try and get married before Lent. No one wanted to be single when Lent hit. Um, so if you were, you'd be on the Skellig lists. So people would actually shout at you on Chalk Sunday, laughing at the fact that you were single. Chalk Sunday? Yeah, so um, that's when the day is throughout Lent. Um, it's after Shrove, so there's um, Chalk Sunday is the week after Shrove Tuesday. So they're the days during Lent where nobody wanted to be unmarried. Um, so lots of people rushed then. The women would rush to the men on the 29th of February before Lent came to try and hold them down if the men hadn't asked them first. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? I always use the phrase, somebody has a puss on them. You know, I, I use that quite common. Um, but that's related to this in some way. This is brand new news to me now because I was often wondering where that came from. Yeah, so it's a related tradition. So the last Sunday, before, or the first Sunday before Ash Wednesday, single women would be reported to have a puss because they haven't been asked to be married. <laughs> But um, the leap year's men then, when leap year came around, would have the post because a woman had not proposed to them. Um, so the, these were the people who actually, by the time Lent came around, they were not married and they weren't happy about it. That's brilliant. So that's where the phrase, he or she has a post on them, comes yeah, from. Yeah, no one asked them. <laughs> it explains an awful lot for sure. You know, when, you know that I play music for dancing and, and, and the like, and every so often they have a lady's choice where the ladies ask the gentleman to uh, to dance. I wonder, is that related to this in some way? Yeah, so the original tradition, it would allow women to initiate dances as well. Okay. So right. traditionally a woman would not walk up to a man and ask them to dance. But on the leap year, the woman, on leap day, the woman was allowed to walk up and ask the man to dance. And then if she fancied him, she was allowed to ask him to marry her afterwards. So um, it was the women's day really for them to take control. Isn't that great? Has it any place whatsoever in today's generation with today's generation has it 
I think that couples are so diverse now. A lot of them wouldn't feel like they fit into that um, that boundary or that category. Um, I think that the way relationships have gone since it is so equalised that women feel like they can propose to their husband at any stage or a man feels like he can propose. Now, for more traditional, I suppose, couples, from what I've read online, would not be happy to have to be the one to ask because they said, I was reading a Facebook post, in their head, they'd have to know that they had to do it. They had, would have to know that it got to the point where their husband or their boyfriend had not asked them, so they had to get down on one knee and they said they'd rather be single wow. than have to be the one to ask. So I think it's all about your own belief system if you're kind of more of a traditional person or if you're more contemporary and you just think, yep, yeah, I'll ask. But surely, Leanne, you'd want to be fairly certain that, you know, the partner, whether it's boy, girl or whatever it is, um, nowadays it could be anything, God knows. But you'd have to be pretty certain that they're the marrying kind, wouldn't you? I think so. I think that, um, like any proposal, you'd have to be fairly sure if you were getting down on one knee, especially in a public place. God, because I think that people will look to, if a woman is down on one knee, they are going to get look at them more than they might if it was a traditional man proposing. So I think you'd want to be fairly certain that they were going to say yes. And you'd have to know why they hadn't asked you up to that point um, if you were willing to get down on one knee. Yeah. Yeah, we'd love to hear from people, wouldn't we? Yeah. I mean, if, if did you propose to your husband or, or maybe the husband would might like to talk to us about proposals or whatever, do talk to us about this. 1800-938-007 because Leanne is nosy and she'd love to know, <laughs> I know as much uh, as possible out there. Isn't it intriguing though? I was just thinking, uh, I only discovered lately there's another dance that they do down around Wexford which is an excuse me dance which means that couples are... are Dancing around, right? But but then they stop and they tap somebody on the shoulder and they join that partner. Oh, yes, like the steal me dances. I've seen them as well. And What's so, that called? There's a steal me dance. So if uh, it's in a lot of um, like line dancing or country dancing. Um, if you want the partner, you go over and you steal them. So you actually pick them up from the partner they have. So that's you stepping in and saying, actually, this woman now, I want her. And the man has to turn around and try to find someone else to steal. So it's something similar, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. A steal me dance. Yeah. Wow. Do you know you're a bundle of knowledge? I am. <laughs> do you do line dancing? You do? My mother does. All She's right. big into it, yeah. Okay, steal me dance. I'm going to have to introduce that to the gigs soon. Leanne, thanks very much indeed. You want to talk to Leanne about steal me dances or anything else? As I say, 1800-938-007. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Bye. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now, well, just some of your text and uh, WhatsApp. Josie was on to us to say, and Fran, can you define what a cabal is for me? I think you're referencing Matty... Matty McGrath's contribution at the media committee yesterday where he described what's happening in the RT as a, a cabal. I think it's kind of like a, a group of people united in some sort of a um, uh, some sort of a design, I suppose, and it's normally full of intrigue and it's not known to kind of the outside in some way, Josie. That's my understanding of uh, the word anyway. Uh, Brian was on to us 
and he says, Hi, friend, when it comes to climate change and the restrictions and burdens being placed on ordinary citizens to cut back on their emissions, nobody is mentioning that in Germany at present they're constructing new coal-fired power stations and in Japan they're constructing 43 uh, realistically uh, will cutting back a bag of coal or a tank of heating oil for some elderly people offset their emissions says Brian and of course that is uh, frequently brought up in the conversations um, and uh, that's making reference to a piece that's in the the newspapers today about some new uh, research as to how we feel about climate change in this country Uh, somebody else saying this is making reference to Rita who spoke to me earlier on this morning about her uh, choice um, to not vote at all in the coming uh, referendum and uh, listener says if Rita doesn't believe in change or hasn't been convinced then the best thing she can do is to vote no it's up to those who want to change her constitution to convince us of the need and the reason to vote they failed to convince us of a need to change uh, this if they fail they should vote no so I hope uh, that Rita reconsiders uh, in some ways. So there you go. Oh, it's three, three, double one, double three, double one. Now let us uh, move on because uh, we've got a very special piece for you now. And I've got to find something here on my computer before we do it. Tipperary Arts, funded by Commission Naman, with the television license fee. Delighted to be supporting the arts here at uh, Tip FM. The Forge players present Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars at the XL Theatre in lovely Tipperary Town from tomorrow night, the 29th of Feb, until Saturday, March 2nd. Now, the director is Michael O'Donoghue, and he's joining me now. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning, Fred. And it's been a while, Michael, and it's lovely to talk to you uh, again. This is a wonderful piece, uh, deemed extremely provocative, I suppose, when first, sta- first staged in 1926 at the Abbey, Michael. Oh, it is indeed, um, Fran. It caused riots at the time, in fairness. Uh, yeah, there were many objections to it. The, the stage was stormed, and uh, it, it, it caused chaos, really. Yeah, w- was it because it seemed to be critical of the Patriots of 1916 in, in some sort of a fashion, Michael? Was that behind it? Yeah, it's based in 1916. Now, you know, it's one of the trilogy, as you know, it yeah. was a good one, um, Juno and the Peacock, and, of course, the masterpiece is The Flower and the Stars. Yeah, it's based uh, on the rise of 1916, and it's... Um, uh, Sean O'Keefe, he was a, a real uh, humanitarian and a really anti-war mm. So, like, he, he looked at that as the guys fighting, and um, he, he saw that uh, there was a lot of bravado and so forth, but there was a lot of fear behind it as well, and that there were human beings. And he was, of course, always, he thought there was a bit of a kind of a, a, a you know, a capitalist plot, I suppose, yeah. behind the whole thing. And least to that as well, like, just as I did, well, what he brought it in, it out in, 
somebody shouted at the protest, but there was never a prostitute in Ireland. <laughs> and you'd be while she's inside in in Bowden inside in the in the public house outside the window, your Catherine Pierce extorting the people uh, to march and so forth, wow. and uh, recalling what the Russell's graveside oration and so forth. And you have these two things contrasting, and it, people couldn't just take that. God, I can't, I can't imagine. Is, is it still relevant, uh, Michael, do you think? Because, of course, that, that argument still goes on, does it not? Particularly, we've come out of the year of centenaries and stuff, and there's there's still people who would question, I suppose, 1916. Yeah, yeah. And what's remarkable is that what Casey did it only 10 years after yeah. it happened. I mean, it, it, I, I, find my, I find it hard to get my head around that. And, you know, it made him kind of unpopular to a certain extent. In fact, he, he immigrated to England and never came back, mm. you know. And the but fact that the National uh, Theatre commissioned it as well, Michael, is particularly interesting, isn't it? It isn't it, though. It's yeah. remarkable. That is remarkable, yeah. And um, uh, it's very relevant to our times today when you think about it. Mm. You yeah. know, yeah. we have troubles all over the place and we, we question them and we, we, we wonder how the hell could it happen in this day and age? I mean... How could a war be happening in Europe? I mean, you know, have they, as Marlborough, the little girl in the play, says at the end of, of, of Act One, when uh, all this chaos is going on, she, uh, this is the girl that just suffered from tuberculosis, and which of the course of Redmond at the time mm. in tenements, but yeah. she makes the comment, is there anyone at all with a titter of sense? And out of the mouth of babes, you know what I mean? And it's a, so a question we—a a question we're still posing, Michael. I suppose we're still, we're still posing. Yeah. You know, it's hard to believe yeah. that we're still repeating and that history is repeating itself over and over again. Yeah, we seem to learn nothing whatsoever. Tell me about the staging of it and, and the cast, Michael. Was a difficult one to cast. Difficult enough. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's one of the bigger casts, actually. I, I was well. I, I added a few people on just the extras, I suppose. Yeah. Walked out last night, and there were seventeen people on the stage. Wow. Well. But it's it's it, 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 it's one of the bigger ones. Yeah, it is, and of course, it's fairly typical of Ocasey and that. Um, uh, the men tend to be um, come out less less well. They, they may be boastful and they put on a great show, but really, uh, they're like the peacock. There's not maybe that much substance as we would like. But as the women tend to be the strong characters in O'Casey stuff, uh, maybe that's something got to do with the fact his father died when he was only six, but his mother kind of, he was very fond of his mother. Yes. Uh, but definitely the women come out stronger than the men. So uh, we, uh, we have a big cast and we have um, this three or four or five strong women characters in it. Yeah, and and uh, you have the usual men, the usual alcoholics, both from people aspirational people, you know what I mean? And, you know, in, especially in this play, this one is, um, the language is is, is, is different altogether. It's fairly archaic in ways. But yes. it's, the people you see, the ordinary people in Dublin, didn't have any great power. But what they had was, they used verbal power. So what they would kind of, if you had an opponent in a pub, you try to verbally pummel him into submission. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and you, they use all these big words, and I'm not quite sure they understand them exactly. Well, like well that, that's very typical, I suppose, of working-class Dublin at, at yes. the time. They were very witty, they were very sharp, and, yeah, they had colourful language, all right, didn't they? Very colourful language, yeah. and they tried to beat one another down with colourful language. And 
Why use one word when you can use ten type of thing, you know what I mean? Yes. So it's a very certain lo- lo- locution, really. But that's the fun of the whole thing. And I think it's actually a Dublin thing to a certain extent. You know, if you go to a football match in Dublin, you're just doing great. You, you do, with some <laughs> great slag- slagging yeah, in the pubs, yeah, yeah. Uh, for instance. Yeah, so you're, you're running yeah. for three nights, Michael, is that it? Three nights, that's why it's sad. We have, the, we have the dress rehearsal tonight, and we're opening tomorrow night in the Excel for three nights. That's it, yeah. Very good. If people want to book, uh, what's the best way to do that? I just ring up the Excel. So they know that's the best way to do it. Okay, yeah, so just Excel. just call them up and you, you can... Call them up, yeah. I think that those the online stuff for this one. Just ring, just ring them up. Very good yeah. indeed. Well, Michael, it was lovely to talk to you and can we wish you the very, very best, yourself and the, and, uh, the cast, the Plough and the Star, a wonderful piece. Great opportunity to see this as well, Michael, for those who might not have seen it before, you know. It's, uh... All right, thank, thanks, Michael. Thank you, Gurmila Margot, and bye-bye to you. That's uh, Michael O'Donoghue there, who is the uh, director of the Plough and the Stars, the XL from tomorrow night, running until uh, Saturday night with a, a fantastic cast there. And I see that my old friend Pat Bernan is there looking after the, the sound and the like as well. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, get your gardening queries into us. 083-311-3311. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. It matters to you. It matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Now, Declan was on to us and he says the meaning of cabal in English, a small group of people who plan secretly to take action, especially political action. And uh, it's, as I say, this is in from Declan. And Declan says, Matty loves that word. And uh, Liam uh, as well. Um, sure, there's a few operating in the Doyle. Says uh, Declan. Well, thanks for that clarification. I had a go at it uh, off the top of my head and it was very clumsy, Declan, so I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, Fran, I'd love to know how many uh, marriages, if any, take place in a leap year. I'd say women would be afraid. People might think that uh, he'd never have married her. She must, if she had to ask, sister, it's, oh, I see what, I see what you mean. But you're, would anybody know? Would anybody know? You see, there you go. Anyway, let us move on and in some way let us uh, move back to where we started this morning because a lot of people were commenting on that letter that Phil uh, received yesterday where the, the girlfriend was rather uh, appalled, I suppose, at uh, the notion that the boyfriend would go to the toilet, he's number one, and he's number two, and leave the door open and continue uh, chatting uh, to her. Now we've got some great reactions to this, but Dave is with me now. Dave, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Dave. What what do you make of this? I just think, like, you've probably seen my comment there, but, like, um, I wrote up and basically just said that, you know, uh, it would have you would expect it to be the bare minimum standard that a parent would teach their child to close the door when somebody's going to the bathroom, mm. never mind an adult. And I suppose it, it sounds funny and it's a bit ridiculous and I suppose the comments were all a bit having a poke and a bit of fun. Yeah. But I suppose if you take it seriously from a, an adult perspective, like I'm 34, mm. um, I'm only recently in a relationship with somebody and if I found out that they were like that, well, the first thing I'd do is call them out on it. But it would nearly be a deal breaker for me 
for somebody doing something like that, you know? It's just a bit gross and a bit insensitive and a bit no cop on and that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I, I find it not acceptable now, I have to say myself, but I'm a bit prudish where this kind of thing is, is uh, concerned. But it's interesting you mention um, families and, you know, wh- where that comes from because Mary was making the point that, you know, it must come from childhood that he came from a family where there was no problem leaving doors open or whatever. Yeah, either, either he was spoiled or he was wrapped in bubble wrap as a kid. But I know if... I mean, I can think back to times where I was being taught to go to the bathroom, obviously, yeah. as, as a kid. Yeah. And my mother would always say to me, close the door. And there would be times where, as a young lad, it's different, for, I suppose, for women. But as a boy, if you're going to the number one, you might not necessarily close the door because it's just easy and convenient. Mm. But yeah. I, mean, I remember loads of times where my mom would shut in, close the bloody door. Yeah. And then yeah. she'd, we'd come back out and she'd go, do it again. I dare you do it again. Just do it again. <laughs> And it was a real Irish way of, of dealing with it. And my grandmother was the very same. You know, I dare you do it again. You know, you'd get hit with a blackthorn stick or a wooden spoon if you'd done it again, like, you know. So it, taught you, I, it would teach you a lesson for sure, yeah. Oh, she wouldn't, like, both my grandmother and mother would instill the fear of God in you. But, <laughs> and that's why you, you would never cross them again, Fran, you know. Yeah, but, it's, it's an and, interesting one. But, I mean, I, I, I go so far as to say I even have an issue with this en suite in, in, in the bedroom. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, go down the hall a bit and you have some privacy or something like that, Dave, you know? Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, a lot of places are have down suites and have the, the main bathroom. I like the idea of, of the two bathrooms. My brother and his fiance have a house where they have two bathrooms. Now, the two bathrooms are, are separate to the bedroom. Mm. Um, and I suppose Sarah has often said that she would love if she had an ensuite. But even so, the bad the bathroom is so close to their bedroom, it may as well be an ensuite. Yeah. But I can understand what you're saying. The idea of, you know, being in a in a bathroom, in a bedroom, and then you don't know the, you know, people's bodily functions, the smell or whatever. <laughs> so it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a weird one, you know. Yeah, but I, I it probably says more about me now than than anything else where that is concerned. <laughs> um, oh, give her a bit of advice though. What what would you say to her, Dave? What would you say to the lady in question? She would genuinely need to sit down with him. Yeah. And, like, he's an adult. He should know better himself anyway. Mm. And I would have the open dialogue, the open conversation. But if he's not willing to close the door, I would be like, look, bye. You know, I'm not dealing with that. Your mother is the one that should deal with that. And that's the other thing. You know, she's meant to be a partner, a girlfriend. Yeah. She's not his mother. She's not his grandmother. She shouldn't have to be training him now to close the door to go to the bathroom. That was a, a duty that should have been long before her. So, you know, my question to her would be, are you looking to be a partner or are you looking to be a mother? Very interesting. And you know something, there's something kind of Irish about that too, isn't there? You know, in terms of... There is. You know, the the, the son being mollycoddled in some way and then the poor old wife or girlfriend ends up trying to deal with it in some way. Right. It's an interesting one, that's for sure. Well, Dave, we appreciate you coming on with us today and thank, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye bye to you now, Dave. Um, yeah. 83 It's time for gardening. Delighted to be joined by Alton Nesbeth, our horticulturalist from Arabon. Good morning to you, Alton. Good morning, Fran. And great to talk to you today. Shrubs coming into flower? Yeah, this is a uh, fantastic time of year. Always coming in into the springtime. 
you have these lovely shrubs that will give you great colour right through the spring into into the summer. Um, and I, there's some specific ones that I particularly like that give great colour um, at this time of the year. So things like uh, the uh, ribes sanguinium, the, the, the uh, flowering currants, they're particularly nice and quite easy to grow. You often find them lovely pink pink or red flowers that come out of them, probably like almost like tassels uh, of pink or, or red flowers. And they're they're almost like a, 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 a like a wild current. So even taking hardwood cuttings from them, you could have a lovely hedge in no time of it. And it gives a magnificent display at this time of the year. Other ones that are very good as well are the lovely spireas. And there's a lovely one called Spirea Bridal Reed. And this has lovely arching white flowers come out, out of the shrub mm. um, and it really gives a fantastic display tiny little rosettes of white flowers um, along the, the stem of it um, and then they just kind of ask, uh, uh, cascade over the, the edge of the shrub itself and there's a lovely thing called uh, Forsythia Forsythia lingwood uh, is particularly good. This is a lovely golden uh, splash of yellow. Um, and again, after the doldrums of winter, it's lovely to have a, le- a nice splash of yellow yeah. in, in the garden. And the forsythias are particularly good for that. And a, a lovely combination plant with that is, and there's one just outside uh, here I'm looking at, is a little one called um, uh, Ceanotus. And Ceanotus trisifolius is a lovely dark evergreen shrub and has a magnificent amount of blue flowers come out in it. So if you have the blue and the yellow and, and the red or the pink um, in, in, in a border, it gives a fantastic display at this time of year. So the sea notice is particularly good. And that's uh, sea notice is the uh, California lilac. Now, you can get them in, in the large shrub form or even as a climber or even as a ground cover as well. The sea notice repens, which is lovely uh, ground cover um, type of sea notice. Mm. And that is, that's a great um, cover of blue that you can have in the borders. Other things are like the brooms. You often see these broom plants, and the brooms are almost like wispy um, um, type of shrub that has these massive yellows and reds and orange flowers from it. Brooms are quite easy to grow. They're kind of short-lived, really, though. They, they only kind of last for about five years, and then they get tend, tend uh, a little bit woody and straggly-looking. So every five, every five years, I tend mm. to uh, replace them. But really, they are magnificent uh, for uh, and flowers. And wh- what, what are they called again? Brooms? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Sisters, which is uh, a broom. Okay. Uh, um, and, and they're a beautiful plant because yeah. um, they give, give a great... They're fantastic for bees as well um, because bees love, love the, the brooms. You often see um, the, uh, the Genista Hispanica or there's a thing called the Ulex uh, Europaeus, which is the gorse that's in flower now, that mm. li- li- lovely um, yellow flower. Uh, you often see some kind of in, in uh, wetland areas or, or uh, yes. um, even, even along um, the roadside, this uh, gorse, the Ulex Europaeus. And that has lovely bright orangey yellow flowers from it as well, which is particularly good. There's a lovely cultivar of that, which is the Genista Hispanica, which is lovely, um, almost like a broom as well, but it's more of a ground cover one. And that, that's a particularly nice one. Or just things that have great fragrance as well. And it's nice to have mm. something that has good strong scent as, uh, at this time of the year as well, are the lovely viburnums. Now, there's, there's lovely evergreen viburnums or there's deciduous type ones as well. But um, I like viber, viburnum fragrance, and it is very fragrant, is particularly nice pink, pink white um, flower that comes out in it. Or then there's brookwoodii. And brookwoodii is, is almost like a snowball tree, actually. Lovely round um, uh, snowball type uh, flowers out of it. But again, if you have a shrub of that, or it's quite a large shrub. If you have that near to the house at this time of year, you just get the lovely scent oh, lovely. in the whole, yeah. the, the, the whole yard and that. Um, other plants in the flower on a little bit later would be like the Philadelphus 
Um, and I particularly like the Philadelphus because that's a lovely mock orange um, flower. And there's a great scent off that as well. Um, and quite an easy thing to grow. It doesn't matter about soil type or, or it's not too fussy um, where it goes. As long as it's in full sun, mm. um, it, it'll give a great display uh, right through the um, late spring, um, early summer. Other plants then that, that are just coming into flower, mm. which I think are particularly nice, are the lovely rockery perennials. Now, the things like the, the Arbretias and the Arabis and the, even the Alice and Saxatiles, and these are, are fantastic ground cover plants um, that give a great display. You often see them growing out of um, old dry stone walls, you know, the, yes. the blue and white and, and purple, uh, just uh, cascading off, off over the walls. And they're quite easy to grow. I mean, they're, bare, they're, they're almost self-seed on bare rock. You know, they're, they're that easy to grow, really. Um, and again, they're fantastic in a rockery or somewhere where, where um, soil is pretty poor. They, they thrive on, they thrive quite well. So, I mean, these are fantastic plants to plant now and to have great colour into the spring going into the summer. Um, just just magnificent looking, really. Very good indeed. Uh, lots of questions uh, coming in for you. Uh, I grow hyacinths and daffodils, but they are falling down and they need support. What's wrong with them? Is it the quality of the bulbs? No, um, hyacinths and daffodils always have to be in full sun as much as possible. Now, the hyacinths tend to do get top-heavy anyway. The flower is quite big and, and it doesn't really, it's not really able to support itself. So you can use these things called split canes. So it's a little green cane that you can put uh, behind the, the, the hyacinth and either just a twist tie on that just to hold the hyacinth flower up, upright. And that will that's give a great display that way uh, and give it uh, good support. Now, the hyacinths are magnificent now at the moment um, and there's a magnificent scent off them. With the daffodils, I always tend to sow... Um, listen, they're just the large, large Dutch master daffodils. If you have them in an open area, in, in, the, in the lawn or where it's nice and bright and sunny, they, they'll grow quite well. But if you have them in shaded or, or, or dapper shaded areas, they tend to stretching for the light and then they, they, there's no support uh, for themselves. So they, they, so they get a bit straggly looking. But really, always grow the little dwarf catch-a-tet daffodils. I always find them quite good because they, they support themselves. They're a multi-headed uh, flower on them and, and they're lovely to the front of a border um, and uh, there's no, uh, they don't have fall to the ground or anything like that. They really mm. help, help support themselves. There's another lovely little plant to go with the, the daffodils is a uh, blue muscarii and this is a grape hyacinth which is a great plant in front of them as well just to have that nice contrast of the blue and the gold um, together. Yes. And is that a bulb as well? That's a bulb as well. Oh, and right. it's a great okay. one. It's a great one because, you see, once you plant it, you have it for, for life. Um, it really comes every year. It's almost like you, know, you have your lovely snowdrops mm. first, uh, yeah. and they, they're, they're lovely. And then the crocuses. Then you have this lovely blue muscarii, the grape hyacinth, which is lovely at this time of year as well. And I see, once you have the golden daffodils and the blue muscarii together, they're a lovely combination together um, to, for, for display along a, either a pathway or even even in front of the borders. Yeah, this there has what I think is a common enough problem. Uh, how do I get rid of ivy that's taking over a Grisolinia hedge, Alton? Now, really with ivy, especially ground ivy, um, it will, will take over at the base of the yeah. hedge and choke it um, uh, practically. So what, what you try to do is, is cut it back down to ground level as much as possible and paint on a thing called uh, either stump killer, a roundup stump killer, or even a thing called SBK, brushwood killer. 
um, and that you paint it onto the stumps of the ivy and that will kill it at the root of it because a lot of people tend to pull at the ivy at the base of the hedge and then by next year it comes back tenfold mm. and it nearly, nearly strengthens it so really if you can cut it back down to ground level as much as possible and then paint on either SBK brushwood killer or a thing called a roundup stump killer onto the stumps of the ivy and that will get, get rid of the, the, the root system of it and uh, it won't come back then. So it keeps it lovely and clean. Mm. If you leave that go for a while though, it's an enormous job, isn't it? It is. It is an enormous job and it will, it will actually weaken the hedge yeah. um, and choke it. Now, I love ivy myself. I, I, I have ivies up in trees and things like that and, and it's great for the mm. birds and, and um, especially the wood pigeon uh, that likes the blackberries from it as well and the bees very good for bees because it's, it's a, a great plant actually the ivy for flowering um, during the winter months uh, and the bees c- c- can get the, the nectar from it there then um, and as well it's very very good for the, the wood pigeon mm. but really um, if, if it becomes too invasive you can you can prune it back fairly hard and especially if it's on a wall or anything like that especially a dry stone wall is try and cut it back to, to the wall itself because so that it doesn't uh, branch out once a, a storm comes or anything else, it can actually pull the tree down or even the wall down because it, 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 it's yeah. quite um, uh, heavy. So always prune it back as much as possible to, to, to a wall or even to, to, to the tree as well. Uh, all right. Another listener says, my daughter moved into a new house in 2022, sowed new lawns last April. Six weeks of drought followed before the lawns sprouted. Then there was a incessant rain uh, from July on. Lawns in many areas uh, are now yellow and she's panicking that the grass is dying off. Any suggestions from Alton? Yeah, really at this time, because it has been so wet, there's been an awful lot of leaching. And, um, and then as well as if there's a lot of water on you as well, you get an awful lot of patchy uh, growth in your lawns. Um, and even this yellowing, uh, discoloration uh, in the lawn. So really to green it up really well, you can either use a kind of a liquid seaweed uh, feed uh, as a base feed uh, over the lawn, and that would green it up within five days, make a lovely rich green colour on it. Or what I what I would recommend is an empathy lawn feed, which is particularly good. And that's great if you have your front lawn and you want it looking really immaculate, um, and, and especially if you have guests arriving at the end of the week, you want to green it up quite quickly. The empathy lawn liquid lawn feed is, is very good for that. Um, now, really, if, for, if, if it has become waterlogged, I would do a little bit of forking uh, with it. So so that you help in the drainage. Brush in the silica sand on top of the lawn as well. That helps with aeration and and drainage um, in the lawn. In any of the very larger patch areas, sow a number two grade lawn seed in those kind of patchy areas. Mm. And um, uh, that would take about uh, three to six weeks to germinate. Now, would you do that now, Alton? I would even do that now. Would yeah, you? Just, All right. Yeah, okay. to, to encourage, because it's the, it is actually quite mild. I mean, there's, there's great growth at the moment. Uh, everything's starting to burst out into growth, and the fields are lovely mm. green now at the moment as well. So, really, um, it's so the number two utility grade lawn seed um, in the patchy areas. And then, after six weeks, once it's germination, everything else, just raise the lawn or pie, do a tip more on it, just to allow it to branch out and thicken out quite, quite, quite well, um, the, the grass seed. And then, use a thing called seven. 617. This is a potato manure fertilizer, especially if you have a large lawn. You know, yeah. uh, it, 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 it's quite a good um, uh, fertilizer to put on new lawns, just to have a lovely green color throughout. And then that that will be like almost like a bowling green lawn. It'll be really, really rich and, and very thick as well after giving.
in the defeat of that. Very good. So her daughter need not panic at this point. Um, uh, best time to plant a gooseberry bush and uh, what do you call black gooseberries? Thank you, says Mary. Um, with with, with, um, with um, there's, there's loganberries as well. But, but now, with the gooseberries, um, uh, it's good to plant always in, in the dormant season. So September to March is the best time to do do them. But there's a lovely variety called uh, Careless, and that's a self-pollinating variety. Now, it's quite a heavy cropper as well. So with the gooseberry, um, sometimes with, uh, with, with, if you have other varieties, it's much better to have uh, two other varieties, or even the varieties called Careless, which is a much heavier cropper um, uh, to put into your fruit garden. Um, now, with the goose as well, I always do a tip prune on them after planting them, just so that you don't get any soft growth, because uh, gooseberries always get this thing called Canadian mildew, um, which attacks it. So it's very important to get rid of any soft growth on the top of the, the gooseberry bush and always keep the centre of the bush open as much as possible so you get good uh, ventilation and um, no uh, mildew or botrytis building up on, on, on the gooseberry. Always feed it with a thing called uh, sulphate or potash as well at the base of the gooseberry bush. It's, it's, uh, you just uh, encourage it to produce more flowers for you. Now, the flowers come out quite early as well. So as soon as the, uh, uh, the flowers come out, allow the bees to do their, their, their pollination. Mm. And then after that, use a, a netting over it, um, a bird netting over it. So you're protecting the gooseberries from, from any, any, any blackbirds or, or thrushes that may, may be devouring them. It's quite an easy thing to grow, really. All right. Uh, somebody wondering, would you recommend a long-flowering clematis uh, that will flower in spring? Yeah, really any of the Montana varieties are very good. Um, they're a magnificent, um, a, a very um, a vibrant uh, colours from them. Now, Montana Reuben tends to be the, the best one of them. Uh, it's a lovely pale pink uh, flowering clematis. Now, they're quite a vigorous one as well, so they will take over, um, let's say, the uh, end of a barn or a shed or something like that. Or even if, what I like them is going up to trees. Because they are almost like a cascade of flowers that hang down from the trees then after that as well. So you can get the lovely Montana Rubens or uh, Alba. Uh, so you have the lovely pink or the white um, uh, growing through each other, which is particularly nice. And I, I love the clematis of um, Montana because they're, they're an easy one to grow. With the summer flowering ones, uh, it's, it's very important to plant them a little bit deeper than normally because they tend to get um, the clematis wilt. So it's very important to, collect, to protect the lower buds from any clematis wilt that may, may attack it. That's a, like a fungus that attacks them. So really, so if you plant the summer flowering ones a little bit deeper than normally, um, they, they'll flower quite well and, and produce plenty of flowers for you. So if you wanted to have flowers right through the whole spring and um, going into the summer, is have uh, Montana, Montana Rubens, and then you can go for either Nellie Mose or lovely uh, large flowering clematis with a pink stripe through it, which is particularly nice. And then uh, go on to Jack Manny or the President, the lovely deep purples and, and, uh, and blues um, into the late summer. So uh, you, can, you can have a, a good, good selection of flowers right through the, the uh, spring into the late summer. A combination of questions about raised beds. Um, how to prepare soil? Uh, what is the best time to sow carrots in a raised bed? And can you sow tomato plants in a raised bed? 
Uh, the best way to pl- prepare soil is really to do a thing called double digging. So what I mean by that is digging a trench and turning the soil over uh, and then adding either a, a bit of silica sand for, for drainage um, uh, just to, to in, in, if you have a very heavy soil uh, in it. Uh, and then com- uh, do that over the, the winter months. So you allow the frost uh, and, and the, the winter weather to help form a, a good crumb structure in, in the soil. So the frost does a great job on that. And as well as that, by doing the double digging, you're helping in drainage and, and um, in uh, making a better, um, lighter, loamier type soil um, in the, the veg garden. Um, with sowing uh, carrot seeds, is this as the... Um, yes, carrots, yes. Yes, yeah, we're sowing carrot seeds. Um, now, there's, you can get carrot seeds in, in the strips um, uh, of, of cloth that are quite easy to grow, or even um, a variety called um, uh, Autumn Timberly Early, or Autumn Glory is quite a good one. Um, and and so, so those in a thing called silica sand on top of the ridge of the carrot. Just fold over the seed very lightly, cover the seed very lightly, and then water afterwards. Now, after five weeks after germination, uh, when that's a five two leaf stage, is to thin them out. And, and thin them out, and you can transplant any of the plants with a dibber as well in, into the soil, and just water them in well. Now, carrots are notoriously uh, difficult when it comes to carrot root fly, um, so it's very important to use a kind of an environment um, cover over the carrots, and that stops any carrot root fly from laying eggs at the base of the carrots. So then you, you don't have any attack, or, and the carrots will grow quite 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 well after that. Use a thing called superphosphate as well on, on any root crops, mm. especially carrots, parsnips, or even turnips as well. So superphosphate is a good fertilizer for any of your root crops. So do a nice, um, uh, just a dressing of that over where you're having your ca- any of your root crops, cabbages or, or carrots or, or, or parsnips. Alton, always a pleasure. Happy gardening and thank you very much indeed. That's the horticulturalist Alton Nesbitt of Arabon speaking to us uh, there. Uh, just before I go, uh, Patrick was on to say, Fran, I have a wet room in my bedroom. It has an extractor fan, so no problem. It smells and it's very easy for late night uh, use if you need to wee. I also have a second bathroom, which I keep for guests. And when they visit, the rules of the toilet is lock the door. If you sprinkle while you tinkle, please be neat and wipe the seat, says our Patrick. And uh, somebody else on to say, we shouldn't be talking about such things. You could be right about that. You could be right about that. But uh, making the point as well that uh, the guy in question who insists on leaving the door open while he's doing his business um, uh, needs to be spoken to and the partner should have the guts to sort it out herself. This is one of our listeners who's rather cross with us today for discussing such topics. That's it for me. Uh, Leanne produced and Ali was out and about uh, for us on the village tour today in Holy Cross. Stephen's on the way and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Look after yourselves, won't you? And lock that door. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.